Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. Yo, what's up, everybody? I am Drew. final few weeks of 2022 it was only inevitable that we would be here today which is which is where we are covering the final volume of Gundam the Origin volume 12 incidentally if you've been following us on this journey it's been a long time coming we've been going over this one volume a month over the over the course of the past you know 12 months and here we finally are, uh, the final culmination of just this gigantic epic tale that we've been reading. And uh, yeah, man, I'm pretty excited now that we've built up to this huge climax and we're finally going to be able to discuss it with all of our listener. Hello? <laughs> Wait, did you say listener singular? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So the one person out there who's listening to us, thank you. I had to do a double take on that one. Yeah, I I didn't hear anything from you, so I wasn't sure if you got what I had said. But <laughs> to all of our fan. <laughs> yeah, Drew, any thoughts uh, before you know we, we go into it? Any anything you want to mention or you know just man, it's, it's, it's just pretty momentous a, yeah it is man it, it takes me back to about one year ago when we finished our read-through of invincible and the thing that stands out when we were recording that episode is that i remember we recorded that at a different time than we normally do so i think we started that in like the middle of the afternoon and the room I was in, I had I was just relying on the natural light in the window. Mm. But as we started talking and the episode got on longer and longer, by the end of the episode, or towards the end of the episode, it got dark outside. <laughs> and, and I couldn't reach my light switch, so I was just sitting in the dark so <laughs> I wouldn't, you know, disrupt the flow that we had going on. <laughs> that is an apt image for this podcast and also our lives. Yeah, <laughs> we're the just two men sooner than we expect. <laughs> just two men perpetually sitting in the dark of our lives. <laughs> yeah. uh. You know, before uh, we discuss this volume, I do want to mention that I I recently watched a couple of Yoshikazu Yasuhiko related videos. Uh, one of them, well, I watched his first directorial feature film, which was the anime Crusher Joe from 1983. And on that disc, the discotheque version, there's a 75-minute a interview with Yasuhiko and a couple of other uh, people involved in that movie. But that was a, a pretty good 
taste of who he is and and how he works. The interview itself was from like 20, I want to say 2014. So not super old, but it it did have some funny anecdotes. Uh, like there was a thing where he was talking about some of his art and he mentioned how there's this artist in one of the volumes of The Origin, and I don't remember which volume, but uh, I think we mentioned it when we covered it. But one of the artists, one of the a popular manga artist did a special bonus feature for the back of the book of one of these Origin volumes and talked about how when, when he was a kid, he went to a an event where he had an opportunity to ask Yaz a question and asked him how how he starts any of his drawings. And Yas said that he usually starts by drawing the eyes and goes on from there. And that became this big anecdote that totally affected this guy. It was the guy who created Ushio and Torah, I think is what it's called. I've never actually read it. I don't know what it is, but uh, you know, the guy's pretty successful. And, and Yaz brought that up and how, like he, he just mentioned that that guy, always shares that anecdote it's it's just something that anytime i think of him i always think of him sharing that anecdote <laughs> and it's mm. yeah and, and then he made a joke about how it's kind of it's kind of tough to swallow now that he's more successful than i am <laughs> is he i mean I, I i'm not the most uh well versed in manga but uh you know i i don't even know what that particular manga is 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 it uh, I big is it i don't know if he purpose? meant that i'm pretty Literally. sure he was just making a joke you know like okay, okay. kind of okay. just you know laughed at it but okay, I, okay. I think it is a pretty famous manga i i don't remember what else that guy created but i think he's done a few other things i'd have to you know look it up and and see what else what else it was he did but yeah, yeah. he has is a, is a guy with a, a pretty good sense of humor. Like there was this other anecdote because one of the two of the voice actors in the movie were in that panel interview as well. And the lead female star mentioned how at the end of the movie, there was a scene where she needed to to basically shout in a feminine way. And she said that Yaz made her do that take like 10 times because she was she wasn't doing it right. And then Yaz was like, huh, really? I made you do that 10 times? I don't remember that at all. And then she was like, yeah, it was it was one of the most memorable things of the whole process because I never had to record anything that many times just to get the right take. And then he just kind of nodded and he was like, oh, you must have done it really wrong then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, it, it was a pretty amusing interview, man. Yeah, yeah. I do love stuff like that. I mean, it's it's one of the things that we don't get anymore uh, because they don't really include too much stuff on Blu-rays and DVDs. There was a period in time where that was kind of the hot thing about DVDs. So we were getting, you know, featurettes for everything. But yeah, and uh, commentaries. Yeah, exactly. You know, making of videos, stuff like that. But I enjoy stuff like that, man. Yeah. Like, I've got a bunch of DVDs I'm trying to get rid of, uh, but it's hard for me to get rid of them because, one, even though the the content itself, uh, the movie or show or whatever, 
has been updated in terms of uh, video quality at this point. Like, if I get rid of those uh, discs, I get rid of, like, the commentary and the, the, the videos and, like, all that extra stuff that I don't think I can get anywhere else. So... It's weird how the Blu-ray doesn't include the stuff that the DVD included. Yeah, it's got more space, so theoretically it can give you that stuff and more. But I think it wouldn't surprise me if like studios just realized and decided, you know, uh, they didn't want to spend money or do that stuff anymore. You know, either that or they just hate us. I think both can be true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I'm pretty sure both are true. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If if I've learned anything from sitting in the dark all my life, <laughs> it's that most of the reason that anyone ever does anything in this world is out of spite towards me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other video I watched recently was this video online on the NHK World website. I don't know if it's uh, an ongoing series or program they have, and I don't remember how I came across it, but it was a video, like a 49-minute video, uh, where another famous manga artist uh, interviewed Yasuhiko about his processes, and there was even video uh, set up inside Yaz's studio, and you could watch him as he created a page of uh, his current manga. I, I don't remember... The name of it, it's not something we have available in English, unfortunately. But it was, a, yeah, it's pretty recent. I don't, unfortunately, I don't have the link on me. But I think if you just go to the NHK World website and just do a search for Yasuhiko and, or Manga Artist video, you might be able to find it. But uh, last week, when we were talking about Adam, the beginning, we also mentioned Pluto by Naoki Urasawa. So he was the other mangaka in that video. So it was just him and Yaz having a conversation about art. And you really got to see Yaz produce his art. Like, I, th I think one of the previous extras in the origin, in one of the earlier volumes, there was something where one of the people who did one of the bonus materials talked about how Yaz did everything with a brush all by himself. He didn't have assistants who did backgrounds or anything for him. And he didn't he didn't even create thumbnails or layouts before putting his pencil to the page. And it just blew that dude's mind. Mm. So when you watch this video, you see that's exactly how he works, man. It it was pretty amazing. Like there's just minutes and minutes of him drawing. It's it's kind of like a I don't know like a Bob Ross video in some way. Maybe yeah. maybe not quite to that length, but you do get minutes of Yaz just drawing. And he starts. It starts with uh, the blank page and the cameras set up. There are multiple cameras set up. So there's one like right above the paper, so you can see a bird's eye view of what he's doing. And then you'll get like close-ups of his hand as he's penciling stuff. And he does really start with drawing eyes like he'll he'll make the panel layouts like he'll sit there and look at the page think about what he wants to put there and then he'll draw the panels so you know just the squares and shapes and stuff and then he'll start drawing people's eyes and then from there 
he'll do all the figures and and things like that with a pencil and then from there he just uses a uh he doesn't use a pen he uses his brush and he just manages to use that brush to do all sorts of varieties of lines and it's as somebody who isn't very good at art i was pretty impressed just to see that process man and i, I think anyone who is interested in art could uh really enjoy and appreciate checking out how he creates his art yeah it's always kind of crazy when you see people who can just you know fully formed out of nowhere produce their artwork without you know needing a bunch of references or needing to like prepare themselves beyond whatever mental preparedness that they need, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. if I was even to attempt something even remotely similar, I'm pretty sure a lot of my process would involve just looking at a lot of things and then maybe even, uh, like, tracing or, <laughs> or you know, uh, 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 taking a blank piece of paper and holding it really close to whatever it is I'm trying to mimic and and doing my best to uh uh draw a, a facsimile of whatever that is but yeah just the idea that out of nowhere just sitting there uh that someone could do that that's pretty amazing yeah it's magic man yeah because yeah. the thing that he was working on is a historical manga i think it's set in like i don't know i i, I don't i'm not sure it's like maybe the 1800s or something 18 or 1900s and it's it's like the stuff that he was drawing in the examples that they showed was like a traditional japanese home and he didn't need any reference material he just like had a picture of it in his own mind's eye and just drew it that way like the pillars and things for the and the frames for the doors and and things like that he didn't use rulers he just like used his hand and talked about how like that organic feel where it didn't have to be perfectly straight uh you know it works for that kind of setting and urasawa was like yeah because a lot of these older houses you know they have those kind of imperfections so like your natural hand is gonna make it look believable it it more authentic exactly exactly yeah and like just the way that he would draw certain types of shadows and stuff like he had he had his tricks you know like the paper he used was a, a thicker kind of paper that could absorb water so he would get a brush dip it in water and then you know wet the paper a little bit and then he would put some ink on it so then you could get these variations of like a blurring effect for a shadow i was like man that's that's pretty good <laughs> it's like yeah. creative it's there's also this sense of i want to say it's it's it almost feels like there's this sense of science or alchemy to it right where you know there are just these qualitative things that are associated with art things that we don't necessarily think about that we can apply that he can apply to whatever he's drawing that will add these extra effects right mm -hmm. uh you know things like the kind of pen he uses or the the quality of the paper or yeah like you said like this neat little trick of um you know soaking the paper before applying ink 
so that it will have a different effect. It's, I think, to a lot of layman's off the top of our heads, especially if we're not artists, like it's it's a matter of, oh, art is just being able to draw a thing so that it looks like another thing, right? And we don't necessarily factor in all these other uh, qualitative elements that are applied to it and just that make it more, that add to it and make it better or mm-hmm. and just better looking. So it's, yeah, uh, it, yeah. I, I, I didn't watch this video, but it, it does sound like, you know, if you're a fan of comics, if you're a fan of art, this is the type of thing that you would want to consume because it'll give you a better understanding of the different types of, you know, the the different types of effort that goes into making uh, a comic the way it is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And because it was Urasawa, who's a, a really talented and successful mangaka in his own right, it was just cool to see these two giants, you know, talking about process and, and things like that. I, they, they actually did bring up uh, the origin and they talked a little bit about that because Urasawa was like, wait, if you do everything with a brush, what about the mecha in the origin? Because typically, I guess in his mind, he he thought, you know, you want to use a pen for, for drawing mecha because of the industrial kind of shapes and straight lines and, and so forth. But Yaz was like, no, I, I, in the beginning when, when he uh, tried drawing the origin, he, he did try using a pen, but then after a bit, he just gave up on it and he just stuck to uh, his brush. And yeah, he just talked about how even all the mecha and stuff, he, he didn't uh, use any pens. It was all just brushwork. And Urasawa asked him if he had any assistants who, who drew the mecha. And he was like, no, it's, it's all me. <laughs> and just kind of like blew him away. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I would have imagined the same thing where, you know, because technology, especially the, the, the Gundam units, require, like, so many hard edges and, like, straight lines. I, w- I would have assumed that a pen would have been the natural choice uh, for drawing something like that. But that's that's crazy to hear. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I know, my understanding is that Yaz has an assistant, but I think the assistant only does some of the gray tones. I don't think the assistant actually draws stuff. Because you know how a lot of famous manga creators, they they basically have studios with assistants, and they'll draw a lot of backgrounds and things like cars or whatever other objects that aren't the figures, like the people or the characters. Yeah. And, And that's just how a lot of manga is produced because it has to be churned out in such a quick fashion. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Yaz doesn't do that. It's, it's pretty much all him. It's uh, it's the sort of thing that makes you, I guess, wistful at the thought that this is a guy who, you know, is, is a legend. He's been doing it for so many years. And, you know, he... He'll probably with, be with us for a few years, a, a bunch of good years more uh, to come. But uh, 
there's also something kind of sad at the thought that, you know, there's only so many years left. And when he's gone, I don't know if there's ever if you're really going to see a talent quite like that ever again. Yeah, at, at least, you know, not for a long while. You know that. What, what do they say? Like a once in a generation sort of talent. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. But yeah. But that's why, you know, we're uh, doing a podcast episode about him and his work and, you know, promoting him so that all of you, all of you listener out there can, (laughs) you know, (laughs) get a feel for what, what, what's, what's out there, what's good. And, uh, you know, you can appreciate it while he's still around. And if you're lucky, uh, you know, you might go out of your way and even go and meet some of these fine creators or at least be able to consume their work while they're still around. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you saw our Spotify wrapped stats. We have more than one listener. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out uh, to whoever is in Columbus, Ohio, listening to us. Yeah. We see you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. Shall we get on with our usual book discussion? Let's go for it. Okay. So, today we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam, The Origin, Volume 12, Encounters. And I'll do the full row, the full run of credits on this one. It's by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, original story by Yoshiyuki Tomino and Hajime Yatate, the staff at Sunrise. Mechanical design by Kunio Okawara. The translation is by Melissa Tanaka, and there are production credits for Grace Liu, Hiroko Mizuno, and Anthony Quintezenza. All right. So, anything you want to say before we dive into chapter one of volume 12? Uh, I guess I'll just repeat what I said earlier, which was, you know, this was something that has been 11 months in the uh, in the building up for us. So here we are. We finally made it. And, you know, it's 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 the culmination of all of that effort and and investment into this story. And we're about to come and watch it all just you know, finally blossom and, and just watch everything fall into place. So it's it's a pretty exciting moment, you know? Yep. All right. Let's do this. As usual, we'll do a recap of each individual chapter and then provide our commentary and thoughts. Section okay. one. We pick up from the immediate end of the previous volume as the Gundam and Ziong both essentially destroy each other. We see Shar eject from the Ziong's head and escape. The Gundam is grievously damaged and is missing its head, left arm, and right leg. Amuro is probably concussed, but he's still alive in the cockpit. Meanwhile, a large company of Cassilia's mobile suits land on a Bawaku to put down the Giran loyalists and Artesia's loyalists. White Base, which had crash-landed on the exterior of the Space Fortress, experiences a break in the fighting as Kai and Hayato stand guard outside in their gun cannons. Inside, 
the bridge operators confirm that they've lost the Gundam signal and that they also lost track of Sela after she ejected from her core pod. Frau is frantic with worry and grabs the communications gear to contact Amro to no avail. Bright orders Kai and Hayato to leave their defensive posts and infiltrate the base interior to locate and rescue Amuro and Sela. In the Abawaku command center, Cassilia sees on a monitor that the Xiang and Gundam have been destroyed, bringing her great satisfaction. Elsewhere in the fortress, her forces are fighting the rebel Xion factions. Sela, accompanied by her loyalists, finds a comm line and tells everyone listening that Cassilia is the enemy and that true Xeonists need to stand against her. This message likely adds to the chaos within the fortress, and we get some scenes of heavy fighting. The chapter ends with Amro waking up inside his Gundam cockpit and noticing Shar's empty escape pod. Amro straps on a personal jetpack to help him navigate the low-gravity environment. Armed with a pistol, he escapes a nearby secondary explosion and prepares to head down a dark corridor in search of Shar. Well, this chapter with this entire volume being the culmination of, you know, all of the previous 11 volumes that came before it, it's it's fair to say and fair to expect that this final volume is going to be chocked full of action. And that's pretty much what we see here is just a lot of action going on. It's pretty gorgeous to look at. And... Mm-hmm. It's pretty fun to look at. There's this one one page uh, piece or one page that they do earlier on where all of the uh, you know the 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 Xeon mobile suits are just rushing in, and you just it's at a glance you're not really sure what you're looking at, but then you know it's it's the type of thing where you take your time and really absorb it all and just watch. Uh, you know, all these soldiers coming in and just watch as the battle is about to get joined, you know? It's just yeah. crazy. Is, are you cool. talking about that one one page spread? It, it's like a page where you almost, ha- I think you're, you're supposed to flip it. Uh, yeah, you turn the book yeah. on its side in order to look at it. But yeah, You just see exactly. all these mobile suits flowing out. They're, they're pouring out of a ship and yeah. about to storm the fortress. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a great drawing. It's crazy to think that at this point, even though the battle is still raging and you think about the numbers that these the sides, the various sides are fighting with, and it, it might sound like a lot, but if you think about it in the context of everything that's happened already, like they're only a remaining fraction of the human species at this point. <laughs> you know, like I don't know like what the actual percentile is but you know it it feels like a ton of people have already died yeah like i know it's the whatever remains of the human species was when we began this it was already at half of whatever was yeah in existence so whatever we're at now is a fraction of a fraction at this point you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so the idea that there is something kind of absurd about it where they're literally still fighting on to the very last few <laughs> batches of their numbers. And, you know, it, it almost feels like whoever's left, they 
they they might as well just be one person in charge of like you know a handful of other people but <laughs> if they can claim victory that's their victory and that's good enough for them you know but what are you what are you the victor of right at that just point a, a bunch of uh you're just yeah it's just one of those things where you might win the war but at what cost yeah it reminds me of a uh, Doctor Strangelove. You ever watch that movie, Drew? Yeah, how I learned yeah. to love the atomic bomb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, spoiler for Doctor Strangelove, at the end of the movie, like nuclear war is engaged, and the leaders of uh the of the United States or of the Western powers, I, I forget. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's the United States. Basically, they're locked away in a bunker underground, and they're just, you know, they're just, even though they've just set in motion the eradication of a major portion of the population, they can't still help themselves but to think about what war, what what the war is going to look like after the bombs fall, because now they have to prepare themselves for... You know, they have to prepare whatever is left of humanity for that final war. You know, yeah. it's absurd. <laughs> yeah, it is a, a masterpiece of satire. Yeah, yeah. But I do think it's uh, uh, an apt comparison here because, again, this, even though there's a lot of action here, and I do think that there are people who can look at this and they might walk away thinking that it's a glorification of it like it's it's also obvious that this is something that as a work discusses the the tragedy and the pain and the heartache of war you know mm -hmm. um it's there are instances where it's obviously a necessary evil but i don't know maybe it's not something that should be reveled in i guess Exactly. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily the official stance of the book. I can't speak for them, but yeah. I think, I think that's the case. I think that's okay. the case. Yeah, I, I, I do think it comes through at the end. It's, it's, uh, it comes through in the story. I think, and certainly there are going to be people that have either a, a misunderstanding of the work or just a uh, really poor ability to interpret yeah signs but yeah i think for most readers uh you know it should be pretty obvious but that's also part of the tension of any kind of i guess war story especially in a visual medium like comics or movies or tv where partly you do want to entertain the audience even if you have a message so there's there's often that tension between entertainment and being realistic and presenting a worldview and ideas you know mm, mm. there's a scene on page 19 that i thought was pretty funny it, it made me laugh 
It's the scene right after they realize that they can't reach Sela or Amuro. So Bright gives the order to Kai and Hayato to go into Abawaku and locate, mm-hmm. assist, and rescue them. And then after they get that order, Kai's all he's all kind of gung ho. Like he starts boosting off and he's like, Let's go, Hayato. And Hayato's a little bit uh, tentative and he's nervous. He was like, There was a lot in that order. Locate, assist, rescue. And and then Kai's like, Yeah, it's a vote of confidence. And he's, <laughs> you know, licking his lips from our captain, you know? And then Hayato's like, Oh, you think so? And then he just says, <laughs> Dumbass, I was being sarcastic. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, he knows that he's about to go somewhere where he's probably going to get killed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It kind of reminds me of something that I did read in the back matter of this book, of this particular volume, where they talk about how in a bunch of other other conventional animes, uh, whenever they present the characters, there's usually this cohesiveness, right? This yeah. this sense of if one character says something, then everybody else in the cast is gonna be like, "Yeah, let's go, let's do it," right? Like you know, there's mm-hmm. there's this sense of cohesion amongst them and uniformity, but. Uh, they talked about how they kind of went out of their way to make sure that in Gundam, the characters were more varied than that. And you would have people that didn't necessarily have that same attitude or share that same feeling as the main character, right? Where it's automatically a given that the main character is going <laughs> to automatically inspire you to do everything just by the virtue of being the main character. Mm-hmm. That's right. But, but yeah, we see the, a scene like this, and I, I, I do think that illustrates that idea where, um, you know, usually you have the good guys, and in a moment like that, it's like, yeah, you know, we're the good guys, and that's why we're gonna get them, and everybody's like on board, and to to have them retort with. A pretty sarcastic response like that, it it makes it more realistic, and it it wasn't something that I had considered out of other works before. But when I read that in in the back matter, I was like, oh yeah, that's that's interesting. I never really thought about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it isn't in the manga, but I remember in the anime, there's a funny scene with Kai and Hayato where they've landed on a Bawaku and they're just shooting at, at enemies and they're thinking about Kai is thinking about charging into the fortress, but then, uh, you know, he's having a shootout with these Zaku's and then, uh, some, a couple of other Federation gyms drop down and they go into the corridor ahead of him. And he's like, you jerks. That was, I was going to go in there and you're like, you know, basically implying that you're, you're stealing my glory. And then as soon as those, gyms land and they go in there they get destroyed immediately and then and then it just cuts back to kai in his cockpit and he's like whew good thing i'm a natural coward saved my life (laughs) (laughs) i like that (laughs) yeah he always gets these great funny scenes yeah yeah 
Did you have any other thoughts on this chapter? Uh, I mean, I guess it's pretty cool to see Sela and, you know, that part of the revolution playing out in this volume two, where mm-hmm. I think so much of the weight of the family's revenge story has been placed on Shar. And and I think we talked about this in, in the previous volume as well, but um, to see Sela kind of take on this role as, as the figurehead and wielding that power and that title in a way that strikes back at you know the the zabi uh family and in a way shar has sort of lost track of what his overall mission is at this point because he's you know he's he's gone from wanting to get revenge to this whole holy war with new types uh replacing old types and all that right and mm-hmm. and and i guess he sort of lost the the thread of what he's doing a little bit and to see sela ultimately be the one who gets revenge for her family or you know in this moment at least uh there is something vindicating about that you know yeah yeah, vindicating is a good word for the situation. Yeah. I like that moment too. Yeah. It's heroic. Mm-hmm. And even though the the soldiers that are beneath her or, or, or that are following her are, you know, Zeon soldiers, um they there's there's a nobility in them as well, right? Because they're I guess they're they're loyal to the, the the true family, the real family, and um, you know they're they're not really characters that we see too much of. Uh, they're relatively new compared to the rest of the cast, and some stuff happens later in the book. But mm-hmm. um, in the brief period of time that we know them, uh, we we've we've come to. Well, I don't know about you, but I've come to like appreciate them to the point where when something bad does happen, it's like, oh man, that sucked, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I felt for this guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Especially because he's one of the few older looking dudes in the story. Yeah, <laughs> that too. <laughs> that too. Never forget that. <laughs> yeah. That was my other thought on this chapter, though. You got anything else? I really like the closing sequence with Amro where there's just a bunch of silent pages. Um, he's, you know, crawling out of the Gundam and figuring out what to do next, checking out his surroundings. And really the only, the only words are, I'm coming for you. Just you wait, Shar. Cause he hasn't, you know, he's not done fighting Shar and he chases him into this corridor and the way that it's colored is it's pretty amazing man like these last few color pages where he's flying out of this explosion and then the perspective when he's looking down this hallway it's pretty like 
just beautifully painted. And then the very last page of the chapter when he's just got his pistol drawn and he's looking into the depths, that's uh, really good imagery. I like, I just like the artwork a lot. It, it just so good at building tension and, and anticipation for what's to come next. Yeah. The coloring is pretty glorious in these last couple of pages, you know, considering that there's so much darkness going on, but there's also so much, you know, fire and explosions. So contrasting them against each other is just, it's a beautiful mixture of colors. Uh, yeah. You know, between the oranges and the purples and the blues. Yeah, totally. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on to section two? Let's do it. Chaos reigns as Xeon mobile suits fight each other inside the fortress. Sela and her Xeon loyalists on foot do their best to avoid the mecha as they make their advance to the control center. Cassilia decides to issue the order to abandon a Bawaku. One of the commanders recommends defending the fortress, and he's brutally gunned down in response. The other officers fall in line. Cassilia's men plant some booby traps as they leave the control center. Eventually, Sela and her followers make it to the abandoned center. Looking at the various monitor feeds, she sees a human figure on one of the screens. It's Amaro. However, as Lieutenant Donovan Matgloss tries to use the PA system, he realizes it's been booby-trapped. He manages to protect Sela from the blast, but at the cost of his own life. Lieutenant Willie Macho is enraged at the loss of his commanding officer. Sela is resolved to find Amaro. Amaro finds himself in Giran's antique hall, which we saw in the previous volume. It's dark, but he has to find Shar. Somewhere from the darkness, Shar calls out to him, asking Amro why he came after him. Shar asks if Lala led Amro here, and they get into an argument over what Lala would have wanted and what new types mean. But in the end, as Shar stands atop a ledge overlooking the hall, he says he'll kill Amro. So, rest in peace, Donovan Matt Gloss. Hardly yeah. knew you. Yeah, exactly. So he was the character that we were talking about in the previous section, and you know he he was just a brief character, but there was a honor and nobility to him that he was willing to serve the true the true rulers of um, of the empire, you know, mm-hmm. and. This was a guy who was committed to it to the point where he gave his life for it. He wasn't just he wasn't a jobber. He at at the end he believed he was a believer and yeah. And that's a pretty if if he had just been some guy who thought he could use Sela to grab his own power, ain't no way he would have just thrown himself in the way of the blast, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And it's a testament to their story of storytelling capability that again the for them to introduce this character and even though their time within the story was brief uh for us as readers to feel that impact that's that's pretty masterful storytelling i'd say yeah those two pages on 58 and 59 where they show you him his death uh, that's a special kind of savage 
in its own way, where you see that one panel with the shrapnel sticking out of his back. Yeah. Just looks painful. Yeah. And speaking of death, like, there's, I mean, obviously, this this being the final chapter, a uh, few chapters of the book, the there's a bunch of death in it, but there there's quite a few here of minor characters, too. There's this one general, or I don't even know what his role is, um, his but... Or, or his rank, or even really his name. But at this point, Cassilia is talking about, we're going to withdraw, we're going to leave this base to them, and we're going to, like, you know, give it up, and we're going to go back to, you know, our homeland and use that as the basis because it's untouched there. So, you know, we, we've got we've got plenty of uh, resources and room for a second wind, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and this one high-ranking officer is basically saying... I've been with this station from the start. I'd like to stay to defend it. And there wasn't any reason for her to deny him this or to even do what she did. But she basically goes, she looks at him, and then she shoots the dude up right in front of everybody. And, you know, it's a pretty, it's a shock to everybody else because all this dude was wanted to do was to go down with, with the station and, you know, if anything, that should serve her purposes because it's one extra soldier who will fight to the last for for these people well, uh, against mm-hmm. the, the Federation, right? Mm-hmm. But she's just so petty that yeah. she's like, I don't have use for anyone who's not going to take orders from me right here, right now. So if anyone else wants to die, yeah. <laughs> this is the way it's going to happen. It's yeah. Yeah, that's a like a Darth Vader kind of move. It's it's a sign of bad leadership. <laughs> I didn't respect that. Yeah, I, was like, I, I wouldn't why? want to follow that person. Right? Like you've just sown the seeds of uh, dissent within your own ranks. Like this guy wasn't even necessarily against her. He he was he was if anything he was so committed to the cause he was willing to be left behind. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> But she still killed him. Uh, yeah, yeah, she sucks. <laughs> yeah, she totally does. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have any words for it. Cassilia sucks, dude. She totally sucks. <laughs> Put that on a book. Put that on a blurb. <laughs> yeah. That should be on the back cover of every feature printing. Cassilia sucks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And uh, I also want to talk about this one character, uh, Macho. It's, a, it's such a hilarious name, Willie it's, Macho. Yeah, <laughs> it just sticks out too. And he's another uh, like I don't I don't think he, I saw him in any of the previous volumes. I feel like he was introduced in this one. He was introduced or... in volume eleven. He was the the officer okay. who uh, was going to interrogate Sela, but then she oh, told okay, him okay. who she was, right? And then yeah, he got yeah, shocked. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and he's another uh, sort of just a caricature tough guy sort of character. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. There's there's something. He's an interesting character because in this moment when he sees uh, the the one when he sees uh, the one Gloss, what's his name? Donovan Matt Gloss. Yeah, when he in sees Matt Gloss die he's invigorated in that moment and 
you know, he takes it upon himself to carry on the cause, right? Yeah. And he, you know, amongst all the other sort of nameless uh, faces that, that follow Sela, he he's he's the one that, he's like the one character that has a name uh, that we can kind of associate with her moving forward as one of the, I guess as the the one character that we can assign with the rebels that have sided with her against uh, uh, Cassilia, right? Right. But there are things that happen later in the book. I'm not going to talk about it too much, but it just adds some extra depth to him as a character. Um, So it'll be interesting when we do get to that chapter or to that section where it'll, it sort of, illuminates the complexity of this guy beyond just being uh have beyond being a, a guy who had one noble moment and uh was a part of the revolution that took down uh that helped in taking down Caecilia, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And he just has a hilariously great name. It's a great name. It's it's so fitting for the kind of character that he is, you know? <laughs> it, it's perfect for him. Yeah, so over the top. That scene where he uh, loses his crap after his commander dies is... It's a really well-drawn scene, even though there's, like, an element of comedy to it. It's cartoonish. It's Yeah, it's cartoonish, yeah. but there's also, like, this emotional, like, sincerity to it, which yeah. is a really weird combination to strike. But I, it I really think is. it works, man. It's interesting because on so what he ends up doing is when uh what's his name Don Glass uh Donovan Matt Glass Matt Glass right when Matt Glass dies he just screams you know he he goes shit and then he just picks up you know the biggest machine gun that he can find and he's just firing everywhere and it's like super over the top it's super ridiculous yeah he's all these he's other guys just firing at the ceiling. <laughs> Yeah, all these other guys, uh, the other soldiers are like jumping on him and you know trying to have him get control of himself. But while all that's happening, Sailor's in the background, and it's this really serious, dour picture of her as she's just kind of tearing up, you know, and uh, she's really feeling the loss of Matt Gloss, and she she gives a few words, and then the the following pages. Or just uh, a, a few panels of you watching her as she slowly regains her resolve and finds it in her to like get back into the fray, you know. So yeah. it's it's like you said, it's a really peculiar uh, a combination of art styles and moods that are going on in this particular scene, but it's effective, you know. I I, I you might even say that in the chaos of war with all of the different things and emotions that are going on, all the different things that are happening, it's in some way, it's a pretty apt Mm -hmm. description of the just emotional chaos of the moment. Yeah, I agree with that. That page on the, uh, the layout on page 61 is really well done. Uh, you just described it where you get like these three panels on top on the top uh-huh. of the page uh, where you just see her 
profile and she slowly turns around and then the bottom 75% of the page is one big panel and she Sayla's in the center of it looking like she's got some new resolve that's a pretty great wordless scene it's like so simple but so effective like one of the things that I remember hearing in that Urasawa and Yaz video was that they talked about how uh, doing a series of smaller, more vertical panels, uh, you know, implies a sense of tempo and and speed, especially when you put that on the same page with a wide panel, which is kind of what we have here. Like those three panels at the top give us this sense of tempo and rhythm as we're reading it. And then you get to the big panel. That's when time stops, basically, because your eyes just linger on a specific moment. So as a reader, you're just like moving your emotions along with her and then feeling that focus as she's focusing on what she's going to do next as well. That that's that's the beauty of comics, man. That's some great stuff. For sure. I also really like the scene on page 63 when Amro's in the dark. It's another wordless uh page but you just get these horizontal panels of him sneaking around just trying to look for Shar and he knows that he's in this dangerous area but it's man just all the blacks in the, on that page with the little bits of white uh to indicate some kind of light source that's I don't know I just really like the way it looks man page 63 mm. beautiful page yeah I do also like that the story is broken up into these two parts where you have the bigger stakes uh, the bigger stakes being presented by Sela and you know the war between the Federation and uh, the Zeons and while all that's happening we're also watching this final showdown unfold happening simultaneously uh between Amaro and Shar, you know. So mm -hmm. it's it's these two like they're they're both pretty high stakes, but it's one's a lot more personal. Exactly, exactly. So you're you're getting the personal uh rivalry between Shar and Amaro playing out to its final conclusion and ultimately those two things will have to cross paths but until then we're just watching as uh you know these two people that more or less hate each other um we're watching as their story plays out amidst you know this story this greater story that's a story that's a battle for empires, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so it's 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 a it's a good way to to roll out this final volume. It gives us everything. Yeah. Did you have any comments on the trash talk or the conversation that Shar and Amro have at the end of this chapter? Uh I don't think I really had anything too in depth to say about it. 
I guess the one bit of trash talk that caught me in this particular section was at the beginning when the Xeons uh, that are with Sela are, you know, are are fighting with the Xeons that are with Kaecilia, and they're just like, traitor bastards! <laughs> Pawns of Giran, out of the way! <laughs> That was the stuff that really caught my attention. <laughs> Where they were like, coward! <laughs> like, I, I forget if that's in this section. That might have been later. But where they're like, face me, you cowards! <laughs> later on, there, there's a scene where Shar is screaming that at Amaro. <laughs> okay, okay. I might have been thinking of that. <laughs> yeah, that comes later, though. Later yeah. in their battle. Yeah. There's you something some I, I just think it's interesting to think about how uh, Lala plays a big role in their in their conflict. She still haunts them. Yeah, she totally still haunts them. And then there's just the I guess the traditional way that that kind of story plays out is sort of flipped here because usually usually you have a story where the villain kills the hero's love interest. But here it's basically the opposite, where the hero killed the villain's love interest, and now they've got this, you know, whole thing going on where they already hated each other, but now, now they just hate each other even more. Yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good point. It's it plays against type is is what it does right it's mm-hmm. like you said the expectation usually is that we root for the good guy and because his lover dies that gives us the 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 reason to to finally win win through in the end right but we don't have that here even though to some degree they're both kind of fighting for the memory of what lala is right because yeah Amaro's yeah. over here saying that me and Lala, we connected towards the end, even though we knew each other for such a little amount of time. And in that moment, I understood her in a way that you, Shar, never will, you know? Yeah, what a heck like, of a thing to say to somebody. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like you kind of missed the entire point of her and what she was trying to do. And for him to go, uh, for Shar to, you know, retort... Like, basically, uh, I knew her far longer than you and far better than you. But it still doesn't discount the fact that he was so blinded by his own goals and his own warped take on the world that, in a way, he didn't really know her, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just compounds the pathos and tragedy of it all. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Do Do you feel like in this final volume, and and you know we haven't gotten to the final fate of Shark quite yet, but uh, so if you want to save the answer for that moment, yeah, you're welcome to. But I was gonna say in this final volume, I wonder if uh. Char, this character we've seen for so much of 
this the series the this character who you know has it all together and uh you know is just so on top of it in so many ways whether it's his planning or his uh, physical prowess or like just his entire mental piloting. yeah his piloting his mental game like is this the volume where we finally see all that crack where he's maybe not he's not like a complete inept or incompetent or anything but you know we we see that facade crack a little where he's maybe not as good as he thinks he is yeah yeah i would agree with that assessment i think i think it's pretty clear that by the time we get to the end of this battle between him and amuro you definitely see that facade crack and i I think it's made manifest uh in that last chapter when his mask literally gets cracked by amuro's sword yeah but yeah we i'm sure we'll have more to say about it when we get to that specific scene but i i definitely do agree with what you just said okay yeah shall we keep it moving yeah let's section three as Shar has finally revealed himself, Amro takes a few shots with his pistol, but misses. They get into a shootout as Shar taunts Amro. Their duel takes them deeper into the hall, and the layout and darkness makes it a game of cat and mouse. They reach the hall with Girin's armor collection, and Amro crashes into some samurai armor and drops his handgun. Shar continues to taunt him and eventually tosses him a rapier so they can duel with blades. Amro appears to be physically overmatched, but somehow manages to avoid any serious wounds as Shar toys with him and berates him for not understanding that the real war is not between Zeon and the Federation, or even Space Noids and Earth Noids, but between old types and new types. After getting knocked around a bit, Amro retorts, New types don't exist to fight. New types know how to get along with each other, so they don't fight, nor get used like gizmos in a war. That's why, at the end, Lala and I saw eye to eye. Shar is enraged by Amro's comment about Lala and warns him not to utter her name. He goes off on a rant about how Lala could have been a mother to him. He tells Amro about the tragedy of his own mother and how he's been driven by revenge this entire time. They continue to fight with their swords in the low-G environment. Eventually, Amuro gets thrown back and uses the extra space to hide, forcing Shar to call him out for being a coward. (laughs) (laughs) Amuro pushes a suit of medieval armor at Shar, which is only an annoyance. However, while standing in the midst of these relics of the past, Shar sees himself as a young lad defending Artesia from Zabi assassins. Gathering his wits, he faces off against Amro again. So this chapter was primarily focused on Amro and Shar. And oh, I mean, we don't really even get any cuts to the other characters. So it, it's really devoted to their their duel and their conversation. Hate? Their hate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's um 
I don't know. I think the one thing that jumps out at me here, and it's something that might be lost in translation to me, or maybe just something I'm not getting, is um, when when they're essentially just having this uh, penis measuring contest about you know who knew Lala better, mm-hmm. and uh, they're they're you know exchanging retorts about her, and he basically. Char basically says she could have been a mother to me. That was something that I don't know. It's it makes you scratch your head, right? It does. It does. Because on the one hand, the way that their relationship was played out, it's played in a way where it's a romantic relationship, or as romantic as Char can get. You know, um, mm-hmm. you know, short of you know any relationship that he can have with. Uh, that other uh, zombie kid. <laughs> Garma. <laughs> Garma, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's it's always played as this... Uh, I guess the implication of it is that it's a romantic relationship or a, a, a relationship with romantic potential, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then for him to say, she could have been a mother to me, like... Yeah, that's something that made that stopped me in my tracks because I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. I'm not entirely I'm not even entirely sure what he means by it. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So I guess I'm kind of curious like what you, what your interpretation of that is. Yeah. So let me think how to go about this cuz I have a couple different answers. Uh but one of them might involve potential spoilers for a Gundam story that takes place later on. So I don't know if you want me to protect you from a potential spoiler. Is it one of the other Gundam series? Yeah. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> okay, okay. So this is a, actually a, a f- like one of the most famous lines from... Uh, a Gundam movie that came out in the late 80s. And it was, unlike the first three movies, which were basically compilations with some new footage, the movie that came out in the 80s was entirely brand new, like a brand new story from Tomino. And uh, yeah, it's, I mean, the movie itself is called Char's Counterattack. So uh, I guess that tells you that Char has a counterattack at some point in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if he didn't, though? <laughs> <laughs> what a misleading, misleading title. <laughs> most misleading title in movie history. <laughs> the entire movie is about him going to the bank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, in Char's counterattack... It's a story that play, takes place further down in the UC timeline. So Shar and Amro are both a little older. And I'm trying to think of how to say this with the minimal amount of spoilers for you. But essentially what happens is the two of them have another battle. And there's, a, there's another, another war and the two of them go to battle against each other again. And 
during the battle, that's one of the things that Shar says to Amro. Like, and it's another situation where it it's when you watch the movie, I think it'll make you scratch your head too, because that moment is like the two of them arguing while they're trying to kill each other in their mobile suits, they're arguing about their ideologies and you know, questioning why are they fighting and, and like why is Shard doing this and all you know, that kind of stuff. And then at the end of it, you know, that's what he says to Amro. <laughs> and I think the way that I tend to look at that line, I mean, it's it's one of the most debated lines in Gundam in terms of the kind of interpretations that you can take from it. But the way I see it is that Shar has these ideologies and certainly believes specific things and has goals that he can set himself out to try and accomplish. But for all the big talk and the ideals and the things that he may set out to do, at the end of the day, he really just hates Amro for killing Lala and he wants to, like, it's it's a thing where they've done this dance so many times and the important thing to him is just to beat Amro. And the whole, the line about Lala, I, th- I think it's, it is confusing because I, I don't really, that's not really something you ever hear anybody say about yeah. anyone. <laughs> and like for them to put like such emphasis on it, because the, 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 the scene is prior to that is they're having this exchange and, you know, he's like, saying, what do you even know about Lala? Don't you dare talk about her. Never utter her name again. And then he goes, because she, Lala, was to be my mother. You know, like, they dedicate, like, 80, 80%, maybe 90% of this second page to that revelation. So it's clearly aligned with some importance, right? Yeah, but I think one way to read it also is... Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, yeah, I was just saying that it's just bewildering, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think another way to read it is that because Char has been so fixated on getting revenge for how his mother died... He's got maybe a mother complex. A, he might have a mother complex where the way he views... Or the way he views Lala... <laughs> Okay. Not maybe not all women, but Lala, <laughs> like somebody that he that he did love, was someone that he wouldn't want to protect or hold as sacred as his own mother. I don't know. That's uh, that might be the explanation that makes the most sense. I mean, it's a it's a funny way to communicate that. Yeah. Because when you when you put it in those terms, there's you know it it's. There's a lot of questionable stuff of what, <laughs> you know, is, is, is going on. Um, there, there's a possibility that being pumped up full of adrenaline and being in a bloodlust with their greatest enemy trying to kill him, maybe maybe that makes it hard to give out a coherent uh, statement about your motivations. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever tried I'll to... I'll play trombone! <laughs> Have with you ever jets! tried to... Uh, be emotionally honest with somebody while you were in the midst of fighting for your life. <laughs> you just say all kinds of crazy things. Yeah. Like it's just word vomit at that point. 
Yeah. <laughs> if that was the closest thing that closest way that he could say, I loved her like she I loved her as much as I could love any woman. Uh as much as I could love the greatest woman in my life, which was my mother. Like if that was the shorthand way of saying that, then I guess. <laughs> yeah. 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 I just don't think most of us tend to look at the women that we have romantic affections to with and try to make any associations with our mothers. It's just not a place we go. In fact, I'd probably say it's a place I try to avoid. Yeah, yeah. I think most men avoid that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think inserting that line here is a shout out. It's definitely a reference to Char's Counterattack, the movie. Okay. Yeah. It's it's maybe one of the most blatant pieces of what could be considered fan service in the entire work, which is interesting also because I don't think Yasuhiko worked on that movie. So... Yeah, like after after First Gundam ended, <coughs> he kind of went and did his own thing for a while. Um he did character designs for the sequel, the direct sequel to First Gundam, which was Zeta Gundam. He did character designs for that and that was I think I want to say like 85, 1985, so like the mid 80s. And then he he basically stepped away from Gundam for a few years, and then it wasn't until like 1991 when uh, he came back to do some more character designs on the feature film that came out that year, which was called F91. But that one, in F91 and in Zeta, I don't think he really had much story input. I think he was kind of working as a sort of just this hired gun where he did the character designs and wasn't super involved beyond that i think I somebody would have to verify that but uh that's how i remember it so if if i have my information correct then i believe that's how it is can i ask you something about this section mm-hmm. so in this section it's it's a section that's dedicated primarily to the fight between amuro and Shar. So and you know they're not in their mobile suits. It's just them, uh, you know, dueling it out with swords in in a giant, uh, you know, museum or something, right? It's it's, yeah. it's uh it's a space with a bunch of hidey holes and a bunch of uh, crevices and nooks that they can kind of hide between, and a bunch of statues and obstacles that they can use right Mm -hmm. so i'm i'm kind of curious as to your assessment of char and amuro here like i think it's obvious that char as he's been set up is you know he's the greatest greatest there ever was ain't no other like him you know (laughs) (laughs) he's he's good at He's the best at everything he does, right? He's a uh, he's a skilled hand-to-hand fighter. He's a tactician. He's uh, an excellent mobile suit pilot. He uh, is super handsome. He's probably a great lover. All these things, right? Uh huh. Uh huh. And 
I think in the previous sections we've seen Amuro, and although he's obviously talented with the mobile suit, that same talent doesn't necessarily apply to his uh, hand-to-hand fighting skill or any of his fighting outside of the suit, right? Right. So, in your assessment of them, the two of them fighting, is it realistic to you that Amuro is able to survive as long as he did fighting against Char, given the conditions? Yeah, I think so. And the reason for that is because... Well, there are a few reasons I can think of to uh, justify that. First of all, they're in this uh, low-gravity environment, which can make for some surprises when you're used to fighting people in standard gravity. Okay. Right. So maybe that could be a little bit disorienting. Secondly, I do think on some level, Char is toying with him. Okay. And I, I think that mainly because Char was the one who gave him the sword in the first place. Yeah. And then the fact that they're talking so much and Char is taunting him, I feel like that just indicates he's playing with his prey, you know, like just toying with someone that he knows he can beat. And then uh, secondly, or thirdly, I guess, when we do see Amro try and fight, he's still getting knocked around and stuff he just hasn't taken any like serious wounds but he's the one who's getting kicked and he's always on the defensive getting pushed around and he uses the environment to his advantage like pushing objects at char and then running away even though (laughs) you know he gets called a coward but he, he when you're just trying to survive you don't need to have any shame about being called a coward exactly <laughs> that's my kind of fighting yeah. <laughs> in my book you're a hero when you punch them in the back of the head <laughs> yeah so those are all the reasons why i think i can believe the idea that amuro can survive this fight as long as he has plus you throw in the little thing at the end where shar gets that mental flashback and sees himself when he was young like that's got to be something that he wasn't expecting to see and he's just disoriented for a a moment there and as we'll see in the next chapter uh it continues to kind of affect his his mental state during the climactic battle i don't know what do you think about my assessment does that make sense or do you think that okay absolutely makes sense and it makes it believable I mean, I think my initial instinct in reading this was Char should have been able to kill him outright, but you you make good points there. So, yeah, uh, I, I buy it. Or I get, it's feasible enough that Amuro wasn't killed outright so that I can continue to buy into the story. Yeah, yeah. Plus, I th- maybe you could even make the argument that his... His new type abilities, just being having these senses, makes him, I don't know, able to more in tune. Yeah, like maybe he can, I don't know, dodge a thrust quicker or something, uh, or just be more aware or alert of his surroundings. I don't know. I mean, I don't think that I I didn't include that as one of my bits of reasoning, but 
you know, maybe I'm another sure you work it in. reader could. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the cumulative effects of all these things, uh, you could you could say that combined, they might give him just enough of an edge to not die immediately. Yeah, exactly. His desperation, so, like he he definitely feels like he's in a fight for his life, and I think there could be a chance that that sort of desperation can give him the adrenaline to do things where he can have those reactions or just not feel any shame about running away and hiding. Yeah, yeah. In that sense, I I guess I uh, identify with him even more. <laughs> <laughs> someone's someone's trying to face you in a in a one-on-one fair fight, a duel, and yeah. you'll exchange a couple of glancing blade slashes with the person, but then as soon as you get the opportunity, you turn your tail and run away. Exactly. <laughs> I'm the, the kind of guy who's really brave when I'm in a car driving 60 miles per hour away from you. <laughs> uh, when we were talking about different ways that supervillains and uh, different ways that superheroes can beat supervillains. One of my main plans was I wait till that supervillain falls asleep, and then I'll have that superhero show up and beat them to death while they're asleep. <laughs> that was my plan. That, that's exactly why Aunt May is the most powerful character in the Marvel universe. She can beat anybody, dude. She just has to wait until Thanos takes a nap, and then she goes to where he is, and then just bludgeons him with a chair. Exactly. That's how my Infinity War would have ended. <laughs> now I want to see Aunt May versus Galactus. <laughs> oh, man. Jeez. One thing about this scene here is that I do like that there's some setup for the whole setting where they're in Giren's weapons room. Because I... I I don't think that was in the anime. In the anime, they just end up in this place with all these swords and stuff, but there's no real rhyme or reason as to how that <laughs> happened. <laughs> we're we're going to show up in the famous sword room. Duh. Yeah. Every yeah. every base has one of these. Yeah. We're in I mean, the I future could be... where we have lasers and stuff, but our armory also <laughs> happens to have a bunch of swords. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could be misremembering something. But I th- I think that's the case, <laughs> and I I do like how even the the prequel or not the pre- the flashback arc when we saw Shar and Sela as kids that you know has a payoff here too because you you do see the connection between the medieval armor and the assassin that they fought that Shar fought in the past. It kind of makes it come together because I think. Seeing that assassin wearing the armor in whatever volume that was, like volume five or six, that that was kind of an unusual sight. But here it kind of comes full circle. So I do like the symmetry there. Okay, section four. Shar and Amro continue their sword duel but Shar continues to see himself in his mind's eye. He pictures Amuro 
as the younger version of himself protecting Artasia from an assassin, but this just drives Shar into an even bigger fury. He launches himself at Amaro, and they crash into some armor, and a helmet clatters to the ground. A helmet not dissimilar to the one worn by the assassin he killed when he was a boy. Elsewhere in the fortress, Sela searches for Girin's suite so she can find Amro. Some Xeon soldiers spot her passing by and open fire, only to be gunned down themselves by an angry, woolly macho. And I think I can guarantee that's the first time I've ever made that combination of words in a sentence. <laughs> gunned down by an angry, woolly macho. Whew. Gunned them, ladies and gentlemen. Sela manages... Yeah. Sela manages to find Giran's Hall of Weapons in time to witness Amro and Shar's clash. Locked in mortal combat, Shar tells Amro that he's been able to fight this whole war because he's protecting Artesia. As Amro responds with a fierce counterattack, he proclaims that he too fights to protect people who are dear to him. Just as the two of them fatefully charge at one another, Sela rounds the corner and screams for them to stop fighting. Shar wounds Amro's arm, and Sela rushes over to help him stop the bleeding, yelling at her brother as she does so. Shar, for his part, is stunned. The tip of Amro's sword had broken off and embedded itself in the faceplate of his mask. That mask saved his life. Removing it, he regards Sela and Amro and tells his sister to get out of this place while he takes care of some unfinished business. Sela doesn't want him to leave, but Shar says that if he doesn't complete his revenge, then everything he's done up to this point will have been meaningless. As he heads his own way, he tells his sister to take care of Amro and to grow up and be a woman to die for. Chaos and confusion reigns inside the fortress as Cassilia's forces prepare to evacuate. Shar takes advantage of the confusion and borrows a bazooka from a random soldier. Cassilia is on the bridge of a transport ship, preparing to return to her flagship, the Dolos. Shar uses his jetpack to maneuver to Cassilia's ship. He flies up to the bridge, throws up a sarcastic salute, and tells Garma that his sister will join him soon. Cassilia and her men see him through the main window and are stunned. Shar takes aim, pulls the trigger, and scores one of the most notable headshots in the history of fiction. The transport ship flies out of control and crashes into Cassilia's flagship, destroying the larger ship as well. A massive explosion rocks a Bawaku. So tell me, Albert, did you think that both of them were going to survive the battle? Both of them, who? Shar and Amro? Uh, Do you think that one of them was going to kill the other guy? I No, I think... I think in terms of my expectations, uh, I expected them to... I expected one of them to finish the other one off. You know, it's... it's mm-hmm. You know, when we when we think of great rival rivalries, that's usually how it ends, right? One of them has to get it on the other one and that sort of culminates the uh the bitterness uh that they have for one another right it's it's kind of the the perfect period but the way that it plays out here 
Um, yeah, I, I think that's a pretty poignant way to have it come to an end, where amidst all the fighting and amidst all the craziness, it, it's almost like they found a way to have their cake and eat it too, right? So it's like yeah. they, they fight it out, and Amuro gets wounded enough, but Char ends up ends up gaining enough of himself back in that moment where I guess the mental break is too much for him to bear and he finally comes back to himself in that moment, right? Mm-hmm. And he he decides that it's no longer about new types or Xeon or whatever. He goes back to what his original mission is, which is, hey... Uh, the the Zeons and Kaisila, the this family, the Dakins, who uh, you know killed my parents. This was what it was all for uh, when I when I first started out, and I'm gonna go back to that even in this moment when all is lost to me essentially. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's a good way to end that animosity between the two of them uh like i guess i could imagine someone out there not necessarily feeling not necessarily getting their satisfaction because one of them doesn't kill the other one but i mean as far as i'm concerned it 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 did its job you know this this was a good ending for for both of them yeah, yeah. Yeah. I bet you most people are relieved that Char survived. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you did... I don't know about you, but there, there, is, there was a part of me that did want to see Char. I don't know how... I didn't know how he was going to do it, but, you know, when you see him standing out there with his... Uh, you know, with his signature Char smirk, blasting a bazooka that knocks off uh, Cassilia's head. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty great. <laughs> it is, man. It is. That's, that's. I didn't. I didn't know that. That's how I wanted it to end until I saw it. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you know it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. 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 You should look that clip up on YouTube or something because. That's exactly what happens in the anime as well, and it's a it's a pretty hilarious scene. Like not hilarious, it's hilarious. like it's meant to be a joke, but just <laughs> hilarious because it's a dude getting a headshot with a bazooka. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the way that the the final scenes play out when you're just watching the devastation and the ships crash into each other, just it's just a fiery inferno, you know. Yeah, but, the colors in on those pages are incredible. Yeah. Like the very last page when we zoom out and see a Babaku with all these explosions around it, but the really big explosion at the top end. Mm-hmm. It's pretty interesting to me the choices that Yaz made in coloring this splash page because it's just surrounded with a lot of pinks and and purples whereas you would expect a lot of blacks because you're in space 
So maybe it's it's not like the most realistic or photorealistic kind of coloring, but just in terms of mood and feeling, that's exactly the right kind of coloring, you know? Yeah. It's like watching a ship go down. Mm-hmm. You know, like watching a ship as you know you're you're on the land and just watching the devastation of it and the horror of it just sinking yeah 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 it's a great moment it's grand you want to go into the next section okay section five white base sees the dolos go down in flames and the bridge operators report that a Babaku has taken significant structural damage and that there's an internal fire raging. Wright gives the order to abandon White Base because there's no guarantee that the ship's engines will work. As the crew heads to the escape pods, Kika throws a tantrum because White Base has become their home. As the crew load up on the escape pods, Wright takes one last look on the bridge by himself before Mirai comes to fetch him. Inside a Bawaku, Sela and Amro try to look for a way out. However, the backdraft from some escaping gyms splits them apart. Amro stumbles on his own for a bit before finding himself back where he had to ditch the remains of the Gundam. Elsewhere in the fortress, Kai and Hayato are still fighting off Zaku's. Amro believes that Lala led him back to the Gundam, and a renewed sense of peace washes over him, and he goes out to his friend and goes out to his friends. Bright and Mira's moment is interrupted when Mira gets a new type flash and senses Amuro. Kika stops crying because she hears Amuro. Through some kind of new type phenomenon, Amuro feels Lala with him and sees his white-based friends waiting for him. He uses his new type senses to encourage his friends to stay calm and escape white base. He reaches out to Sela, who has been unconscious, and she wakes up. He manages to give her precise directions to make her way out. She finds her way to Kai and Hayato in their gun cannons, and they all make their escape to the white base escape pods. For his part, Amuro manages to use the core pod ejection system in the Gundam to begin his own escape. It's a bittersweet reunion as everyone on the, on the escape pod watches white base explode. Their relief at their own survival is tempered when Sela realizes Amro isn't on the escape pod, causing Frau to break down in tears. Bright encourages his people to use their new type senses to find Amro, even though he doesn't understand how any of that works. Sela and Mirai can't feel anything, but after a few moments, the three orphan kids perk up and get excited because they can feel Amro making his way out. With a sheet of metal as a makeshift canopy, to cover his own head in his core pod, an exhausted Amro finally makes his way back to his overjoyed friends, all of whom are waiting for him with open arms on the escape pod. As he floats towards them, he thinks about how he has a place to come home to, and he bids farewell to Lala for now. The story ends with a message that after the Battle of Abawaku, the Earth Federation government and the Principality of Zeon agreed to an armistice yeah it's quite a it's quite a harrowing end to it all you know Mm -hmm. and it's the right note to go out on to watch white base go down where if you're really trying to 
ratchet up the pathos of the finality of the series, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're watching as this ship that has been a home to these characters, but it's also kind of been a home for us, the readers, right? We, yeah. we've, we've developed such a strong emotional connection to it and to have it go out in flames as the one final goodbye uh, to the series, that's that hits hard, you know? It does. It does. And uh, I, it, it reminds me of a lot of shows that do something similar where, you know, as a part of the, the final season for the show or whatever, it also involves the complete teardown of of the set. It, it goes back to the idea of, uh, you know, the the setting being as much of a character as all of the characters in, mm-hmm. in the show itself, right? So yeah. to, to to see it go down, it it's it's sort of this thing where if you weren't thinking about it before, uh, in the moment that you see it go up in flames, it, there's a part of you that realizes that, oh, I'm gonna miss it. You know, this was this was a big thing for me, even if I didn't realize it at the time. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, but you know, it's it's also pretty pretty good to see like everyone make it at the end. Oh, actually, I wanted to talk about this one other scene because mm-hmm. this might be the last chance I get to talk about uh, Bright, who I do enjoy a lot. But he's got a good scene in this too, where he's on the deck and you know. He's giving his final order. He's having everybody evacuate. And he's just taking a moment to breathe it in because he knows what's about to happen to the ship. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if his thought in that moment was, I'm going to go down with the ship or not. But it felt like that was where he was going to go with it before he gets snapped back to reality when I think it was, was that Frau who was talking to him? Mirai, that was Mirai. Um, yeah, Mirai is talking to him, <laughs> and then you know, he he snaps back to reality, and he's he's about to say something to her, but before he can ask her, like pop a big question to her, he gets interrupted. I thought that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I don't know for sure what he was gonna ask her, but <laughs> uh, I'd like to think that he wanted to ask her out, or he was gonna ask her, you know. Yeah, he was probably going to confess his feelings or something. Yeah, yeah. But it was a good... Yeah, uh, that was a great moment. It was a good, great, bright moment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just that whole scene where he's on the bridge by himself, contemplating things. It's, uh... I guess it's one final scene that kind of crystallizes the idea of the loneliness of command. Yeah. Because there's this whole naval history of captains going down with their ship. Yeah. And, yeah, like you were saying, I, I hadn't really considered that he was thinking about going down with the ship. But definitely once Mirai comes, yeah, he ain't going down with the ship, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's 
it's a good moment for him. And and I think it's it's fitting that he gets that scene too because you know, if the ship itself plays such a pivotal role in the story, uh granted everyone has a strong association with the ship, but Bright in particular, I think, just because you know, he was the guy that was thrust into leading that ship for mm-hmm. for so long that he's he's pretty tied to it. And I would imagine that, you know, for a junior officer to get his first command on the ship and to see that ship, to know that that ship is about to go down, it's a pretty emotional moment. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Then we I also like get the, to... Oh, oh, go ahead, go I ahead. I was just going to say, I like the designs for the little escape pods. Yeah. They're, they're like more than just pods, I guess. They're like little launch ships that... They kind of look like they could be on some kind of snow snow terrain or some kind of terrain, but you know they're just ships in space, and people can pack themselves inside or just grab onto the outside and assuming they're wearing a a suit. So yeah, it I don't know, there's just something about it that looks practical but also kind of militaristic. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the the I don't know what they were called, the little jumper bikes from Akira. Oh, yeah. You remember when they were like roaming around in the sewers? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, or maybe like a helicopter without the rotors. Yeah, I could see that too. Ah, heck. It's, it, it looks like a jacked up jet ski. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, you know, we also get one final scene from Lala too, which is, you know, when, when a series is coming to an end, it's it's always good to uh what's it called it's always good to try to touch on all the different hallmarks of the series that you got to experience this whole way through right so mm-hmm. you know us getting to see lala one last time is is a nice little uh nod in the series and also the the whole exchange between her and Amaro um yeah it it kind of reminds me uh, a little bit of what they were in the back matter of this book they talk about it a little bit where there are some people whose inter- interpretation of the series is that we're supposed to lament the idea that new types well that the old types survive because the new types were supposed to be, you know, the ones that replace us and they'll do a better job of creating a society than we ever had, right? Right. And and what they were saying in the interview, if I'm interpreting it accurately, was that, well, they sort of missed the point because the new types are actually supposed to represent hope. They're not supposed to replace the old types. It's that we look to the new types as a hope for you know a better future where we aren't all mm-hmm. trying to kill each other where we outgrow all this and mm-hmm. 
And that's what we see here between Lala and Amaro is they're having this conversation where they're talking about what what this new future without war looks like. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, those are all good points, man. It's a moving finish. That scene with Lala and Amaro reaching out with his senses. Cause the pages immediately after the Lala scene, uh, I'm looking at page 192. Mm-hmm. Like starting from there, you get these scenes of Amro reaching out to all the people that he cares about, all the white-based crew members. He's trying to warn them to get away from the ship before it explodes. He's talking or communicating to to the kids with his feelings. Frau uh, Sela helps her helps her survive when she was unconscious like it's yeah it's pretty cool to see how even his character has grown to care about all of these other people over the course of the story yeah it reminds me of how i think even a couple of volumes earlier when heck when he's fighting lala and she's asking, you know, she's basically saying to him, like, I'm fighting for someone. I'm fighting for Shar. What are you? Why are you fighting? What is this all for? What does it mean to to you? Right. And mm-hmm. he doesn't even really have an answer for that. And then in this final volume, uh, when he's fighting Shar, he, he actually says, you know, I have people that I care about. Mm-hmm. Which is showing that he has this growth. He's. He's, I, I don't know, I guess maturing or, or just developing stakes in, in the people around him beyond just survival. You know, he's got something beyond just survival to live for. Yeah. yeah. It took him a while to get there, but he got there. Exactly. 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 The final scene, too, where everybody's on the escape vehicle and they're just well first they watch white white base explode and then they realize that Amro is the only one who's missing and they're just worried so you get this kind of this ramping up of tension and then the little orphan kids are the ones who have the senses to feel him coming and then when you finally see him get back that's uh pretty beautiful moment too like just those that whole color sequence that ends the story is beautifully done like these really warm colors there there's that one page that's kind of blown up for the back cover of the book but it's the mo- the panel where uh, every all the major characters are just waving their arms and waiting for Amro to to get to them so it's a great a great drawing and that's a it was a smart decision to use that image for the back cover i like it yeah it's it's stirring yeah and then the the lines that he says when he sees them or i guess he doesn't say them but he just thinks them as he's floating in space or about to float towards everybody he just thinks 
I'm sorry. I still have a place to come home to. And it feels so good. You're fine with it, aren't you? I can come see you anytime, Lala. And then he goes towards his friends. It's just, uh, yeah, beautifully executed, man. Yeah. It doesn't need to say a lot. It, it says everything in the perfect amount. And just to end it with that scene of him just floating to all the people that he loves. It's, yeah. It's perfect. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. All of those uh, words on those pages, those are the s- lyrics to the song that played during the movie during that scene. So I think that's why we went back to those. But it it fits, man. Like if you ever watch the movie or at least look it up on uh, – I, s- <laughs> I saw someone post that entire third movie on, on YouTube earlier. Uh, I don't know how long it'll be there before it gets taken down, but you could always <laughs> – just look it up on YouTube and skip to the very end and see how they animated this scene. Cause it's really well done. And with the music and everything and the voice acting, it's, it's a great watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that I've read it all, it might be time to do a dive. I, I have been trying to catch up on all my anime lately, so it could be a good opportunity to get right into it. Yeah. Yeah. And even though it's an older show, I do think there are some pretty impressive bits of animation, especially in the if you watch the TV series, uh, you know, that's got pretty a pretty standard level of animation. I mean, definitely for its time, it's pretty good. But I think uh, with the movies, especially that third movie, when they were able to do a whole bunch of new animation, like there's some pretty spectacular stuff in there, too, because I might have mentioned this way back in our first uh, episode or the first episode when we talked about volume one, but when Yasuhiko was working on the original Mobile Suit Gundam TV series, he got pretty sick partway through the production because he was supposed to be the chief animation director. And then I forget which episode it happened around, but uh, like midway through the series, he got really sick where he even had to be hospitalized. So he stopped. Ooh. Yeah, he stopped working on the show uh, towards the end. And he's like in later interviews, he said that like he was he was still watching the show. Uh, but like there were definitely parts of it where he kind of cringed because he felt like if he had been there, he he could have helped them make it even better than what it was. Mm. So w- when they finally did the movies a few years later, he was able to be involved. So they did a bunch of new cuts and. Uh, if you compare like the last few minutes of the last episode to the last few minutes of the movie, there's a pretty big difference, and it's it's stuff that seems like it shouldn't really matter too much. Like in the movie, you see Amaro uh, floating towards everybody, but the way that his body rotates really gives you the sense of like he's in outer space. There's no gravity. But then when you go back and watch the TV series, like he still floats towards them, but it's just, you know, you're pretty standard, typical, what you would expect to see in a cartoon. Whereas, yeah, you can tell that the movie, they just had more time to to make it a little bit more, I guess, believable. Mm-hmm. Any th- more thoughts on the conclusion of the main story? Um, Not really. I, I think... 
I think we've summed it up pretty satisfactorily. So um, I'm ready to move on to the the other chapters because I do think there's a bunch of interesting stuff in there too. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, actually, there is one more thing I, I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, sure. Did you think that the ending was abrupt? Like, would you have wanted to see more of an epilogue? No, I, I think... I think uh, I'm accustomed to different enough kinds of storytelling where... Um, you a sophisticated reader. Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> where I don't necessarily need to have uh, that sort of thing written out all all, all for me, um, mm-hmm. where, where I get an epilogue or anything like that. Uh, sometimes stylistically as a choice, I think it's interesting to have abrupt endings because it does leave room for you to ponder the questions of what does that world look like after that? And sometimes when they give that to you, that also gives you just as many questions to work with and deal with as well. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't, I'm not limited by that, you know, I don't, yeah. In in fact, when I imagine this uh this volume playing out, if I was to imagine it as a series, that ending scene where he's just floating towards them and uh you know, I could I could imagine the end credits playing over that as that's happening, you know? And mm-hmm. just having it come to an end right then and there. And yeah, I don't think I really need much beyond that because their story is over. For them, this this is the end of their story. I don't need to see them go home and like literally <laughs> set up shop and like decide what am I gonna do now? You know? <laughs> it's it's not yeah, it's it's unnecessary for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that pretty much is the way that the anime ends also. So I think if you check out the ending, you'll be, you'll like it, man, because it's just like the way the comic is. Yeah. Did you notice that the war ends because they agree to an armistice? It's not actually like... One side totally just curb stomping the other side? Yeah. Yeah. I, I I don't think that that was... I didn't think that that was surprising or anything, you know, because if you look at the way things were, they still could have absolutely continued to fight well into, you know. Yeah, they could have fought to the very last person if they'd wanted to. But I think a lot of the times with wars, these armistices are have these conflicts come to an end these wars come to an end it's not always about one side completely obliterating the other side yeah yeah i guess technically it does kind of mean that the war isn't really over they've just agreed to cease hostilities but nobody surrendered or anything yeah well but that's the thing that i think makes the the following three chapters kind of interesting is uh 
you know, we get a peek into. I think, I think, the way that we've come to view war through fiction a lot of the times is, it, it's it's usually depicted as a battle between good and evil. One side wins, one side loses, and once one side wins, uh, well, you know, once once the side of good and righteous wins, that's the end of it forever, you know. And yeah, that's that's. It's kind of how we look at those stories, and I, I think it might be a shame to say, but I think it's also kind of how we, not we, like me and you, but how people look at history, and I think it's a pretty bad way to view history. Um, Too simplistic? I, it's very simplistic, and it doesn't take into account, like, it doesn't take into account that people are still people at the end of the day, and that... You know, you still have all kinds of bad blood and bad emotions and bitterness towards one another. And, and this idea that, oh, that this is the end of it for now, forever, it, it it just allows you to sweep everything under the rug without really addressing the problems. Good point. Yeah. I, I think that's why I do appreciate some war stories where that – or some stories that take place in the aftermath of war – whether it's days or years after where you're looking at the situation and you're really looking at how people are living their lives in the aftermath of it all. And it's never quite a perfect thing, you know? Yeah. I like those kind of stories too. Yeah. Like here's something that I learned. Um, but it, it was something about the civil war and we we're, we're constantly, talking about uh, how the Civil War ended and how, uh, you know, Robert E. Lee, like, graciously, quote-unquote, decided to um, stop fighting because, you know, he didn't want any more of his soldiers to die, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they talk about how uh, there are people that still... There's this... The myth of, like, Robert E. Lee, right? But... I found out like a few years ago that there's like actual records of him, you know, years after the Civil War ended, when he looked at how everything had turned out, he was not happy with the way things were, you know, and he Mm -hmm. even went on to say things like, well, from what I remember, he went on to one, like he continued to have bad blood with Ulysses S. Grant. To the point where he like disrespected the dude uh years after that war ended. Yeah. And and, and you gotta remember like the the whole uh uh arm uh when they signed whatever uh documents that ended the war at Appomattox, like the way that they dress it up in mythology, it's always like, Oh, they were so civil to one another. And, like, you know, it was a moment of peace after all these years of fighting. But these two guys, like, were pretty disrespectful towards <laughs> towards one another all these years later. And then on top of that, he, he even went on to, I think, say that I, – I, I'd have to look this up, so I could be remembering this wrong. But I, I, I do remember when I found out that years later um, – 
Robert E. Lee said something to the effect of like, had, had he known that this was what the country was going to look like, uh, if he had surrendered, he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have surrendered, Mm. you know, it's stuff like that, that we don't think about, but we kind of do need to take those things into consideration. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's not too shocking because there are still quote unquote Americans today who think that it was a mistake to surrender. Yeah. Yeah. But big I surprise. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some people are proud of their heritage, man. Heritage not hate. <laughs> But, yeah. Shall we move on to the bonus stories? Let's do it. Let's do it. There's some good stuff in there. Yeah. Okay. So we have three bonus stories at the end of the book. And the book includes little notes as to when they were originally published. But they all take place outside of the scope of the main story. And they're essentially just little uh extra stories that give us additional shading and insight into the characters and the world. The first one, the first story is titled Casval 0057 for the year that Shar was born. As the title implies, it's a story about Shar's birth. Out of the three bonus stories, to me, I think it's the most inconsequential of them. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. But this one is about Zeon Zoom, Dakin, and Astrea hiding out when she's pregnant and ready to give birth at any moment. After a recent terrorist attack, Federation investigators are looking for them, but Degwin Zabi is hiding them. It's implied that Girin, Sasro, and Dozel Zabi are the ones who are behind the violent resistance movement. We also get to see a young Hamon who helps Zeon and Astrea while they hide in a clock tower. Zion Dekun makes a reference to the birth of Jesus Christ by way of comparison to Casval's birth. At the end of the story, after Casval is born, Giran also makes a point to mention that the clock tower looks like it's begun working again. So that's really all I wrote down for my summary because I didn't feel there was a whole lot of yeah. things that, that really mattered too much. But it does feel yeah. like a story that uh, simply exists to highlight how special Shar is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it is kind of interesting to see what younger versions of all these characters were like. Yeah. You know, them in their prime, uh, like the entire Zeon family. It's kind yeah, of the zombies. funny. Yeah, the zombies. It's funny to, to look at. Who is he? Uh, which one's the big one? Dozel, he was like Dozel. a punk. <laughs> yeah, it's funny to see him like being a, a street punk, a, yeah, uh, you know, uh, a rabble rouser, and it's it's even funny seeing Kaecilia as like a little kid, yeah, and even then being kind of a sinister little bastard, <laughs> yeah, someone that you could hate. Yeah, yeah, and I, I guess there is something about it that does just reinforce the idea of the Federation as just this 
knee on their neck uh, as this force, right? Mm-hmm. It just, yeah, like, I don't think that this chapter in particular uh, really adds much, but it does add, I guess, uh, uh, it adds connective tissue. Like, it fills in the details of uh, things about these characters that we didn't necessarily know about way True. back when. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I, I'm reluctant to call it fan service. But it's, I guess, if I was a fan, it'd be the type of thing I'd appreciate just because it's like, oh, you get to see, you know, the the origins of some of these things. You get to see Garen with a ponytail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it is kind of funny to think that there's that reference about Casval being born in this humble place the same way that Christ was born in a manger. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. I guess we're recording this like right before Christmas, so it makes a little sense there. But it's yeah, for a, a father to uh, say that before his son is born, it there's just something odd about that in my mind. It's pretty high. Uh, it's a pretty high comparison to make. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then like that whole thing uh, where the clock tower is non-functional until Casval is born. It's just, yeah, again, feels like it. it's just there to symbolize that the story doesn't really start until Shar enters the picture. <laughs> yeah. You want to move on to bonus track two? Yeah, yeah. This one I, I wrote a little lengthier uh, summary. So yeah. the second bonus story is Artasia, 0083. So just taking place about three or four years after the end of the one-year war. In 0083, Kai is aimless and listless, a self-proclaimed deadbeat. He hasn't figured out what to do with his life since the war ended. He meets up with Mirai, whom we learn has married Bright and now has a baby named Hathaway. Bright is posted on Earth at the moment and has told her that there's a radical Xeon faction that's trying to get back Artesia Somdekun. Mirai is a bit worried about Sela, but she can't make the visit herself, so she asks Kai. On Earth, a private plane takes Kai to the posh manor estate where Sela has been living. He's posing as a reporter and meets with the current heir and owner of Burley House, an older lady. She gives him more info than he cares about regarding the history of the manor and then sternly tells him that there is no truth to the rumor that Artesia is under house arrest. Sela and Kai get a chance to catch up. We learn that she started the Estrella Foundation, which is an organization that helps take care of war orphans. Kai tells her that Mirai is warning her about the Xeon faction, but Sela says not to worry and that she's already made up her mind that she doesn't want to go back to Xeon. The next day, there's a polo match scheduled at the manor. Sela has become a skilled player. However, there's a dodgy situation as the scheduled team has sent in a replacement team instead. Of course, it turns out to be a Xeon plot, and we see our old pal, Willie Macho, who's <laughs> leading this group, and begs Artesia to return with them and lead them. Federation security was ready for this plot, and is ready to apprehend the Xeon group 
but the lady of the manor somehow ends up talking everybody into settling it with a civilized game of polo. Hijinks ensue, and of course, Sayla's team roundly defeats the Zeons. As Kai's plane comes to pick him up, he and Sayla say their goodbyes. Right as he's getting on the plane, Sayla shouts and tells him that she's looking after Gil and Millie, the two little orphan siblings of Miharu, the girl Kai met at Belfast and who snuck aboard White Base during the war. Sayla tells Kai that they insisted on staying at their home to wait for their sister, but that her foundation is still looking after them nonetheless. It's news that brings both relief and shame to Kai as he weeps on the plane. He's in London, so close to Belfast, and he still couldn't bring himself to go see the kids himself. He is profoundly moved by the good that Sayla is doing and knows that she has no need to ever return to Zeon. The story ends with Kai leaving a bar, thinking maybe it's time for him to stop being a deadbeat and perhaps try being a real journalist. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in this chapter, uh, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I don't even really know where to begin. Um, I think one of the things that I found interesting about this is Kai, his very status in all this is is something that's worth noting right at yeah. the beginning. Because right at the beginning, he's... This is a couple of years after the war, and, you know, at, at the height of it, he went from being a hoodlum to a war hero. And if the story had just ended right where uh, right where they had where it had ended, we could have gone anywhere with their futures, right? Like I, I think most people would probably presume that everybody was gonna live happily ever after. Yeah. But we see that that's not the case with Kai here. He's I don't know if he's necessarily bothered like by what he did in the war if he he necessarily has that type of post-traumatic stress but he's definitely aimless and there are things that are bothering him like specific uh experiences that he 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 went through that have affected him right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's interesting seeing him this many years out and his life really is far from perfect he's just kind of drifting through it and it's it's our chance to follow through his eyes and to catch up with some of the characters that we've seen and uh that that we saw from the uh from the the previous volumes so you know we see mirai and bright they have a kid now um Bright is, you know, still in the military, and I. It, it sounds like his military career is going pretty well, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, and there's also some funny stuff in there where Kai is just having like some pretty weird, impure thoughts about Bright and Mirai. <laughs> <laughs> that that was that was kind of bizarre. I. <laughs> it's funny. It is. It is. He he was just like. <laughs> he was having I don't know if they were I guess they were fantasies of because uh, <laughs> uh, Mariah uh, has a kid with Bright now and she, she had to go you know she had to go breastfeed and he just has this weird fantasy of imagining her 
breastfeeding bright well it's not actually bright it's it's a baby but it's got bright's head yeah. <laughs> and it it just kind of turned him on it was, it was it's pretty weird <laughs> look man when you're really lonely <laughs> <laughs> yeah but then um you know this this him going uh us being in the future and seeing the status of the characters that we've come to know from the previous volumes um we're we've also come to see the status of what's happened between the federation and the empire in the years since and it really doesn't look like things have gotten any better you know i well that's not true the war and the hostilities are over but the tensions are still bubbling yeah. beneath the surface and that's that's the thing that really struck me about this particular chapter was that you know with the ending that we saw and you know finding the news of the armistice we we kind of thought that that was the end of that right that mm-hmm. it'd be enough of a foundation for them to build um peace moving forward but if anything this chapter shows us that that piece is really tenuous and uh super delicate so when when kai goes to see sayla you know sayla is over here and she's kind of dedicated herself to reconstruction she's she's dedicated to herself to helping the orphans of the war and mm-hmm. And we find out that there's all this, there are these groups within the old, there are groups within the, the existing Zeon government that are looking to her because she has a royal name. Mm-hmm. And essentially they want to use her as a proper tool so that they have legitimacy and they can overthrow the government and assert a new government that is going to do in their eyes what is right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's always a dangerous thing when you have, uh, you know, uh, a, a subsect within your fanatics, population. Basically fanatics. Exactly. Who, who want to overthrow the government and who, who think, it, it reminds me of that thing that happened in Germany like last week where, oh, yeah. where you know, they didn't view the, the post-war Germany as a legitimate government because it's a government that was installed by the Allied powers. <laughs> yeah. It's obviously yeah. not legitimate. <laughs> and I don't know if you heard this Oof. part, but they actually found like some old, some, some old Germanic duke, like, he was this related guy, to the someone who was in power back from that era, right? Exactly, but yeah. he was like a cousin or like a fifth cousin, like something really obscure. He just he might have like a drop of uh, noble blood in him, but you know because he believed in their cause and aspired to their uh, to their goal, they were like that's good enough for us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds so ridiculous when you lay it all out like that. But apparently, these people were willing to go so far as to actually try and attempt a coup. 
exactly. There was a network of people, 25,000 people and counting that were like, I don't know how close they were to achieving their goal, but the fact that they were able to get that many people on board, the fact that they were willing to get uh, resources to whatever degree that they got them to make this happen. That's not good, man. Yeah. Yeah. If it yeah. could happen in Germany, I feel like it could probably happen just about anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. They're more... I would say that they're more aware of these things post-World War II because of everything that happened. And you would think that they've spent the time and energy to educate their populace about the threats of fascism. But, again... This just goes to show how like delicate the whole situation is, how how, how easily people can be turned to that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And speaking of which, we see uh, William Nacho, Macho again, right? I almost called him yep. Nacho. <laughs> <laughs> Willie, Willie Macho. <laughs> William Macho. But that's the thing. Uh, so I was talking about him in the previous chapter, uh, previous volumes, sections. And, you know, the last time we see him, he's 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 kind of doing a noble thing. He's he's sided with uh, Sela. He he's uh, rising up to overthrow the uh, the. You know, the Dekun Zeon government, Azabi uh, government, Azabi government. Exactly. And, you know, looking if, if again, if the story had just ended there he probably would have been could have been the basis of whatever new government uh you know he he would have been a sign of hope for whatever new government that they could build uh, as long as you have people like him there right mhm but now we see he's joined in with the fanatics he's not happy with the situation there and he's so fed up with it all that he's decided we're going to take this royal uh you know this person with royal blood and we're gonna use her to overthrow the government and and i just thought it was interesting how complex that was for this guy uh for this character's i guess arc yeah because in the in volume 11 when we're first introduced to him he's the guy that just seems like a a bully making threats to Salem when they they uh, capture her and put her in the interrogation room. And then he goes through all the stuff that you just described. And then when we meet him again in this story, uh, like on page 312, he, he talks a little bit uh, about where his head is at. And you just see this flashback scene of Sela leading the forces uh, that are loyal to her at the Battle of Abawaku. And the way that, even in that panel, the way it's drawn on page 312, Sela's just this bigger-than-life figure. Because, like, look how big she is compared to everybody else in that picture. <laughs> it's it's like he's got this idealized memory of what that battle was actually like. And he says, every second of that glorious battle, the final hour at Abawaku stands clear as day in my memory. That was all a battle should be. And... The moment when my eyes were opened, no longer clouded by the Zabi, Roman and I call ourselves the Donovan Platoon to carry on the will of Lieutenant Donovan, who could not live to see the downfall of House Zabi. 
Under House Zabi, Zion lost the war, but defeated, Zion is not. It was but a step toward the rebirth of our nation, and yet, I can't bear to see what Zion has become, our politics rotten with corruption, our citizens poisoned by defeatism, and false Zionists no different from the Zabi propagating. So I beg you, come home to Zion and lead us as you did at that hour. Help <laughs> like, make Zion great again. Yeah. He's so impassioned. Mizga. Mizga. Mizgiga. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you said, man, it's it's a really fascinating way to take this character that just started off as like this joke and then to see uh, where a few years uh, takes him. It's it's fascinating stuff. It really is. It really is. But I think the resolution to it, it's it's silly, but it's also a hopeful one in that they they foil this assassination they foil the kidnapping plot and then they stop any serious violence from taking uh, from taking place mm-hmm. and it ends with them essentially having uh what was it cricket what what, what, polo. what polo it essentially ends with them having a polo match to resolve their issues and it almost feels like it almost feels like they're pointing out how it's important to have these activities uh, between nations and states because it gives us, it gives them an outlet. It, it gives them this opportunity to build uh, uh, connective experiences with, with one another that aren't limited to uh, just hostility and war, right? If it, it's almost like if we can learn to have fun and celebrate with one another, then we can we that will be our foundation for peace, uh, because otherwise, our if our only um, if our only interactions with one another are hostile militaristic interactions, then, you know, what 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 real hope do we have for building any sort of lasting peace, you know? Yeah, that's a good reading of how that whole sequence plays out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I I hadn't really thought anything too deeply about it. But now that you've said that, that's, yeah, yeah, that's really good. It it adds an extra layer of depth to the whole sequence. Well, I'm looking at this one page right here where, like, the, I I don't know what her official title was, but she was, like, the lady of the the Mm -hmm. grounds, the the ground creepers. And she's talking about, world war ii and she's talking about how the olympics were going on even then and she says it must have been precisely because those times were so dark that lord burley competed in the olympics where every nation gathered for a contest pure sportsmanship bound by the same rules um yeah sorry uh 327 actually in times such as these we must not let a single shot be fired sometimes a single gunshot ringing out is all it takes to set into motion endless killing and indelible hatred lord lord burrow the sixth marquis of exeter lived in such an era himself in the year 1920 of 1928 of the old calendar scarcely a decade since the conclusion of a great conflict the likes of which the world had never seen the calamity of war was poised to engulf the world anew it must have been precisely because those times were so dark 
that Lord Burley complete, competed in the Olympics, where every nation gathered for a contest of pure sportsmanship, sportsmanship bound by the same rules. Yeah, so it, it, I feel like that was kind of the crux of that right there, was just mm-hmm. the idea that, you know, we need something other than um, these interactions with one another, where we're all constantly just worrying about resources and, uh, you know, dominating each other. We, we need to, it's almost like saying we as nations need to find a way to play with one another Mm. uh, in order for us to have any sort of lasting peace. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a bit more civilized than just resorting to violence. Yeah. If we have, experiences where we're laughing and enjoying one another's company we we might be less likely to view each other as enemies and it's maybe someone might look at that as simplistic or corny or something but you know i i prefer that to the alternative where our only you know where our only uh other alternative is to just Massacre everyone that yeah, we don't like. Massacre everyone and dominate everybody through sheer force. Like that that doesn't do anything for me. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's pretty interesting to see that she uh is the descendant of this person because earlier on when she's talking to Kai in on page two seventy-eight, she gives her history and that's a real person. Uh uh. Yeah. Yeah, I, I looked him up, man. He has his own Wikipedia entry and stuff. And uh, Chariots of Fire, I don't think was really about him, because that one was about that that movie was about Eric Liddell. But uh, David Lord Burley, he he did that, or a character based on him did appear in that movie, um, because he was you know an actual real person who lived in that time and competed in the Olympics. Uh, I feel like it's an example of Yaz's interest in history coming to bear again. You know, like he's he's probably had this in his back pocket for a while and thought this would be a a good time to uh, make those references. But funny thing is, is when she when this older lady talks about him on page two seventy eight, she says that he was her great great grandfather that that's kind of interesting to me just because it made me uh try to do some math in my head and figure out like <laughs> what year 0083 is in comparison to uh our time and it, if he's only her great great grandfather it's not that long it's not yeah it's not. <laughs> uh what is that like three generations tops yeah or, or i guess four Okay, four. Uh, yeah. There's a funny scene um, earlier on, too, uh, right after Kai first meets Sela, after they have their initial conversation. Well, actually, first, I want to talk a little bit about their their meeting together. Is that That's the kind of character stuff that I totally eat up. Mm-hmm. Just these... Mm-hmm interactions where the characters are catching up on life and you know you can tell what their relationship is like just from 
bits of dialogue and how they talk to other people about each other. Like when Kai gets uh, cornered by the by the bulldog, he's he's on the ground when Sailor walks in and she's like, huh? Just kind of confused. Like, why is he scared of this dog? <laughs> and then that lady is like, you sure this is the brave veteran from the one-year war that you were telling me about? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, he always was a bit of a weakling. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's just a funny bit of exchange there and then the whole thing where they're in the room and she's telling him about what she's been doing for the war orphans and then what she says when she sees the picture of bright mirai and baby hathaway like that's that's all like great stuff i i totally eat it up and then uh, the end of that scene on page 286, when she puts the photo on her chest and holds it near her heart and, and says that she can hear what Mirai is saying to her. And it just, again, shakes Kai and like makes him realize that he hasn't really done anything much. And he is, compared to them, he's just a brat, as he says. So... I feel like there's a lot of interesting character work being done, especially with Kai here in this story. It's it's just like you have to kind of look at his dialogue and his reactions and then just kind of extrapolate what he's actually going through. But then when you see the, the dream sequence there, I guess it kind of lays it, it all out where he he's just lying in bed and then he just thinks all these negative thoughts about how he's a nobody and hasn't accomplished anything and that he's a deadbeat then mm. yeah it's there's something about that that kind of resonated with me it's <laughs> <laughs> you left me a little speechless there <laughs> uh, the dream he has that night is it's a pretty funny splash page too <laughs> yeah it's it feels like it's a combination of all of his weird, like, it's it's a combination of, like, his lust, his insecurities, his his stress. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it's just everything, like, pure, unadulterated, in, out, and display, you know? Yeah, yeah, That it's just a great illustration for what a fever dream would look like. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally the the scene at the end when he gets on the plane that was a pretty powerful callback to the Miharu story too. Yeah. When she when Sela tells him that she's taking care of Miharu's little siblings it just breaks him. And the the drawing for those scenes is so well done. Yeah. Like I'm looking at page 334 and then 335 when you just see him put his head against the window as just as he just starts to weep. It's it's powerful stuff. Yeah. It sounds like Pepper agrees with me too. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty moving, especially considering like the amount of impact that uh this one woman had on him it's yeah um 
I don't know. It, I, it, it's interesting to see how after all these years, in in spite of everything that he's seen, that it's something that still haunts him so deeply, you know, to the point where he can't see these kids at all because, again, his insecurities are just so much for him to bear that he just doesn't have it in his heart to to face them. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 pretty heavy. It is. It is very much so. Yeah, and and just the way that Yaz draws that sequence is pretty emotionally impactful. He's totally just blubbering. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's an interesting peek into their future. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wanted to clarify something. This was these chapters were were chapters that were made like pretty. They um, they were made at a different time than the original uh, chapters of the book, right? Or or no? Yeah, yeah. The little introductions that we get indicate that they came out probably either towards the tail end of the original serialization or or uh, after the original serialization. Yeah. But, uh, well, let's see. The 0057 Casval story says it came out in January of 2010. Um, and it came out in a, in a guidebook. So I, th- I guess by that date, if the series was, if it ended serialization in 2011, I guess it probably came out near the end of the series run and then uh this artesia story was printed in two parts november 2011 and march 2012 so it must have come out after the series ended and the amaro story uh was 2014 so a few years after the story ended and it looks like they uh that yaz made it for the collected collector's edition uh in japan Oh, okay. Yeah. And also yeah. none of none of these stories was ever animated, so these are these are unique to the comic. Nice. Well, it's this particular chapter it's the kind of um it's the kind of added text that I think adds quite a lot to the original material you know it's yeah it's not just a matter of uh you know what the world looks like you know they got new robots stuff like that (laughs) but it's 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 way more in depth because you're really looking you're getting a peek into how the characters have changed and how the world has changed uh and and i'm not you know just again i'm not just talking about like the shallow elements of the world I'm, i'm talking about like the the fabric of society itself, how it changed, how it's changed and how it hasn't changed um, after everything that's gone on. And that is really just interesting stuff that you can kind of uh, pick through and analyze just, you know, for hours. It's, it's, it's yeah. just got a bunch of material that really makes you think on like, it almost feels like the more things change, the more they stay the same, you know? Yeah, yeah. And yet at the same time, it, it still 
just just enough to set your imagination ablaze as to what the possibilities are. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep, and at the end, Kai decides that maybe he should become a journalist, a real journalist. It's a pretty uplifting ending for a guy. Again, I'm not sure if he suffered through some sort of post-traumatic stress or something as a result of the war, but he did, uh, you know, he he's clearly been adrift after all these years, and now, uh, and now at the end of this, he's found it in him for a little bit of something to 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 just redirect his his life back to some kind of goal, right? Other than just freeloading and uh drifting from place to place yeah yeah so there's definitely hope there it's it's a hopeful ending overall i'd say yeah yeah i liked it a lot yeah i thought it was a great ending and you know i again kai as, as as this sort of jokey character it's it's good that he gets a story like this that gives him more depth and uses him as this point of view character to flush out the future of this world even more. Yeah. Yeah. I love Kai. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he and sailor are probably my two favorite characters. I, I, I've come to appreciate Kai. I dig him. All right. Let's take a look at the final story in this volume. It That's... is the bonus track. Amaro double O 82. In this story, Amuro visits Hayato, who has settled in Japan. As he gives Amuro a tour of the sites, we learn that there are Xeon assassins who want to take Amuro out, but there are so many undercover Federation operatives that it's not too realistic for these buffoonish killers. It's a bit of a sillier story in tone, but it's very sweet to see Amuro reunite with Hayato, Fraubo, and Kika Katz and Letts. While praying at a shrine with everyone, Amro reflects on the last moments of the war, and he wonders if this means he's really made it back. During a private moment, as they go about sightseeing, Hayato takes Amro aside and tells him that he wants to marry Frau and adopt the kids. He begs Amro not to take that away from him. While they are all at the Totori sand dunes, Amro reflects back to the time he left his mother in order to join White Base, which was in a similarly desert-like area. As he reminisces, the final desperate phase of Zeon's plan goes into action as a group of thugs comes out of the sand and tries to hold the kids hostage. It all comically falls apart. Later that night, our heroes are resting at an inn run by Hayato's relatives. Hayato and the kids are sleeping and Amro and Frau get a moment to chat. Frau tells Amro that Hayato decided to re-enlist in the military. She asks Amro what he plans to do, and he says that he's thinking of going back to Side 7, where it all started for them. It's the place where the war found them. He says he'd like to fix it, rebuild it, and create a society where human beings can truly get along with one another. Mm. Yeah, this one 
it was it's it's another interesting chapter where you get to see a little bit more of the world as it's uh as it's developed in the years since the war uh one of the things that i found interesting was that uh there's this new group of zeons that are uh they they follow in the line of that one uh zeon general makave right yeah We, we sort of looked at him like he was kind of a a pompous jerk uh i guess you know yeah. just or a fop or a dandy or something um he was I, an earth weeb he was an earth weeb exactly <laughs> right but i think even when we discussed him then he was someone that we viewed as more competent than your average general uh mm-hmm. like he wasn't a complete and utter joke you know yeah and it's interesting to see that the memory of him is still prevalent enough that it inspires these people years after his death. And it just goes to show that, you know, some of these characters, they live long. The idea of them lives long after their death, right? And that's, that's kind of what history is all about, is that... A lot of the times, uh, some of the most dangerous ideas come from people that, you know, lost the war at the time. But, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the long reach of history, they were able to affect it in some of the worst ways, even if they never were able to see everything pan out for them in their lifetime. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting uh, thing to see. Um I'm kind of curious about something though. Uh so what what was the little guy's name? The uncle or uh, not Hayato? uncle. Hayato? Yeah. So I think Hayato said he was going to marry Frau, right? Mhm. But by the end of it didn't he say he was reenlisting in the military? Uh, so is, was the implication of that that he wasn't going to marry Frau? No, I think the implication is that he wants to marry her, but the only job that he thinks he can do is to be in the military. Okay, because I was looking at that scene and, you know, he he said he was going to be in the military, but he was like pretty sad about it. So I wasn't sure if that meant that he had given up on his dream of marrying Frau. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's true. I I can see how you could come to that conclusion just based on the pages optics. Yeah. 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 I I guess I think I just assumed that they were going to get married because, uh, I watched the sequel anime. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's kind of (laughs) cheating. Uh, wait, I'm trying to find the scene here, but... Um, Are you thinking of page so, 390 and 391? Uh, That's the scene when Amro and Frau are talking, and then uh, Hayato is... Yeah, 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 thinking, yeah. But then you see him, like, wake up near the end, and he's crying. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I guess the other interpretation of it is... He was talking about it earlier, where he was saying that 
Frau has agreed to marry him, but he knows that in in her mind, there's some part of her that's always going to be dedicated to Amaro, right? Mm-hmm. So, so earlier on in the in the section, we see him like begging Amaro, saying like, "Please let her go." Like, I don't know if that's a cultural thing. Like, I don't know if that's anything that Amaro. Th- if there's anything Amaro can do to, you know make her not feel anything for him <laughs> yeah I, I mean i suppose he could just he could either talk to her or he could like just be a really big jerk or something but you know it's it, yeah it's not the sort of it's almost like he's it's it's almost like someone who's competing for a girl with like a ghost or a dead hero or something like that you know except yeah amro is very much alive Mm-hmm. but but yeah so there's a a panel on page 351 when frau sees amro for the first time in a couple years that bottom panel on 351 she's crying and and just so happy to see him yeah hayato's standing in the back and he's just got this expression on his face like yeah man my girl is crying over some other dude yeah it's seeing a Hayato like all these years now, because in when we see him in the previous section, he he's really baby faced, but yeah, he really looks like a middle aged man now. Like yeah, even though it's only been a couple years. Yeah, like he he kind of has a doughy body. His face is all wrinkly. He's even even the way that I feel like his posture is drawn, his he he doesn't have any youthful exuberance. He's he's a guy who's uh he's seen some stuff. <laughs> he's yeah he's kind of spent. Yeah yeah I mean he he pretty much just went through the worst war in in their history, so it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. But if, if you if you think uh, he looks different here, man, you should watch Zeta Gundam. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. You piqued my curiosity. Oh, it's worth watching, my friend. It is worth watching. Mm. Yeah. Like, there's a part of me that definitely feels for Hayato, too. Like, I, you know, I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but uh, the, being who I am and living the life I've lived, <laughs> I, I root for I root for the underdog to get the girl. You know, uh, so so when he's talking about how Frau's gonna marry him, but you know, there's some he has to resign himself to the fact that there's a part of her that's never gonna be able to truly love him 100, percent and that's just something he has to live with. That mm, that hurts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that stings. <laughs> yeah, man, that's a that's a heavy thing to be able to acknowledge. Yeah, but I feel like. That's, That's a heavy sort of, thing to accept. Yeah. Like, to enter into a relationship or a marriage like that where, well, if that's all if that's all I can get. Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta take whatever I can get, man. I'm gonna stick my head in the toilet after this. <laughs> <laughs> Why a toilet, man? Why not a meat grinder? <laughs> <laughs> and then we still see there's very much a lot of political turmoil as there are people as i mentioned before who still serve uh these 
fanatical fringe groups within the Zeon Empire. And they're still trying to assassinate Amuro because... Well, I imagine symbolically his assassination would do a lot for their cause, right? Yeah. Um, there's, I mean, there's definitely the threat of, you know, any participation that he might give if if they were able to rise up, um, you know, and, and he decides to side against them. But really, like, if we've seen anything of history and, and these kinds of conflicts, uh, the symbology of, of these sorts of attacks have a lot of weight to them and and there's something to the idea that this one guy i i don't even remember his name the the one guy that was following uh you know uh that that one zeon are you talking about the guy who's uh leading the zeon plot he's got this bowl cut yeah does he have a name uh he he says that he's I think he's the leader of the Uragang company. I don't remember if Uragang yeah. is his his actual name. Yeah. But I feel like I remember him from the series. Like he was one of the flunkies of of General Makave. Yeah. But that's the thing. Uh, his final fate is he creates this uh, this mobile mobile suit. And it's a, the mobile it's a suit, replica of Makave's mobile suit. Yeah. But it ends up just being trash. Yeah. And completely falls apart. And he has this vision of Makave telling him, I told you not to build it because, you know, it it would just signify the end of it all. Uh, because, you know, you, you would just... The memory of my greatness, essentially, is, is greater than any replica that you can ever make. And by making a replica, you tarnish that memory is, is what I got out of it. Yeah. And in disobeying him, all he's done is, you know, made him a joke. So you see Makave fading into the background. And I think the guy, I, I want to say he dies of a stroke. <laughs> yeah, that's what I assume too. Yeah, right? <laughs> like he just had this vision of letting down his hero. <laughs> yeah, and then he died. Yeah. <laughs> Even that is kind of, it's 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 an interesting symbolism there, right? Where, again, if the ideas of these of of some of the worst kinds of monsters outlive outlive them, then the failure of those ideas in reality, I think, is is the only thing that kills those terrible ideas. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's also a pretty powerful ending here, where uh, the conversation with Amaro and and Frau at the end, like it feels like everything about the entire series is just kind of like laid bare, heart on sleeve, on that last page, right, with Amaro and and Frau dressed in traditional Japanese attire. And Amro says, I want to fix it and rebuild it. And then I'd love to create a society where human beings can truly get along with each other. And they're both looking at the reader. It's like, 
Dang, that's like really straightforward and blunt, but I feel like Yaz earned it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't have problems with those kinds of endings either. Uh like I like it, man. Yeah, exactly. Like I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with breaking the fourth wall and plainly and saying things in in plain statements uh what your message is or what you're trying to communicate and and you're right like he has earned it if this had been anyone else it might be clumsy or ham-fisted or whatever but i'm fine with it the way it is Mm -hmm, yeah Any other thoughts on the stories? No, it's uh well, okay, I guess I guess I'd say that this was a great journey to go on. It's uh it's a great series. Um I do think uh if I had a chance to read it again in one, you know, sitting as opposed to broken up over like 12 months, I do think that would change my uh, just understanding of of what was happening in the movie uh, in the series. Uh, I think it would change my my reading experience of it. So um, yeah, I, I I do think it's something that I can revisit someday, and I'll probably get more out of it uh, in a second or third reading. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of uh, bonus interviews at the back of this volume. I wanted to touch on those for a bit, too. First, there's the interview, uh, really conversation between Makoto Shinkai and Yasuhiko on the landscapes of the origin. So for anyone listening who isn't familiar with Makoto Shinkai, he's a pretty famous and well-respected and acclaimed anime director. Uh, He directed... Things like Your Name, Children Who Chase Lost Voices, uh, Weathering With You. Uh, He just released a new movie in Japan last month called Suzume. So it'll probably get a U.S. release sometime in the next few months. But yeah, they had a pretty interesting uh, discussion that was reprinted in the back of the book where they talk about a variety of things and and one of them was their their sensibilities of lighting and landscapes in their artwork. Yaz mentions that he grew up on a farm in the mountains of Hokkaido and he had an affinity for rivers and trees. And it just made me think back to some of the stuff that we saw in the art from the some of the earlier volumes when they were when White Base was on Earth. Like we would we had a lot of just beautiful uh, natural landscape shots of forests and trees and and things like that. So it it definitely tracks and makes sense as to why he uh, enjoys depicting stuff like that. There was also an interesting uh, comment about the ensemble cast in the story. So re- regarding the ensemble, Yaz says, and I I quote here. With an ensemble cast, I can invest myself in different characters at different times, saying, I like this guy, or I know what she's feeling here. That's a big part of the fun. I kept thinking, wow, 
look at all these badass middle-aged guys. I can't believe <laughs> we made this thing claiming it was for kids. <laughs> <laughs> they made a show where the heroes for little kids were middle-aged dudes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too funny. Yeah, that, that's pretty funny. <laughs> couple other things that I got out of that interview. Yaz credits first Gundam director Yoshiki Tomino with the idea of a bunch of people who can't get on the same wavelength. So I think that makes sense when you think about the story, the overall story thematically. It's about people that can't get on the same wavelength, meaning all sorts of misunderstandings and the inability to properly communicate with each other is the thing that leads to conflict and a lot of human problems and, and suffering. You see that play out on all sorts of various scales. Mm. Another great quote from Yaz. When people in the Aum Shinrikyo cult say they like Gundam, that makes you nervous. <laughs> so like... It's, it's one of those things, man, where, like, <laughs> these bad people, man, they say they like Gundam. It makes you... <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just an acknowledgement that fandoms are awful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it kind of goes to show that there are people who, who claim to be fans of something, and they can still totally miss the point of it. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's... They're the kind of people that just ruin any kind of art. There's, like, this is why we can't have nice things. Yeah, yeah. And and Yaz did go on to say that uh, part of his motivation for groups like that, saying that they like Gundam, was because he, he didn't want the story to be misinterpreted. Um, this is what he says. Uh, so Shinkai asked him, did those experiences have any effect on your work in the origin? And Yaz says, that, this, that was part of the motivation for me. If it was being misinterpreted, or supported in a wrong-headed manner, then I needed to draw Gundam. I could tell people they were wrong, but no one would listen, so it had to be a manga. <laughs> but that's the thing. Even with a manga, like it, it reminds me of the most recent Matrix that came out. Yeah. Like, that's something where the Wachowskis, I think they were really aware of the fact that a lot of the iconography of the Matrix had been co-opted by, like, far-right fringe nuts. Um, to the point where they really didn't want to make any new movies for the longest time. And when they finally had a chance to do one, like, this past... It might have been, like, two years ago now. I think it was about one year ago, yeah. I remember yeah. seeing it last year. yeah. So when they had a chance to do it, they finally wanted to do a version of the film that basically said in no uncertain terms that these were the things that they believed and that all the people that were, you know, taking the idea of what red pilling means and, you know, uh, what it means to awaken yourself to reality and, uh, you know, conspiracies and stuff. It was their way of saying no, you guys are wrong. This is not what any of that stuff was about. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 I think I think even then when when you 
saw how those uh, those people reacted. Uh, it was a lot of people who were, you know, it, it was a lot of the kind of garbage that you would expect. People talking about wokeness or whatever. And um, they just found a way to dismiss the people that created the art because it stood in stark contrast to what they wanted it to mean and what they wanted it to what they wanted to believe in mm-hmm. so so even on those occasions where uh you take the medium itself and use it as a means of communicating what you actually believe it just goes to show um the most ignorant uh, of the fan bases will always find a way to believe what they want to believe in spite of it. Yeah, that is sadly all too true. Yeah. I hate people so much. <laughs> <laughs> just, I hate them so much. Oh, man. The other interview in the bonus materials is a discussion between Yasuhiku, Yasuhiko and Tatsuru Uchida. And I guess he's a, a professor. I don't really know uh, too much more about him, but they had some pretty interesting things that they talked about too. Uh, Yaz says that in their conversation, Yaz says that he isn't sure there's a lot of growing up happening in the story. And Uchida says Amro doesn't do much growing up. And they both also agree that Shar doesn't grow up either. What did you think of that? Do you think that Amro doesn't do much growing up in the story? Uh, I saw that quote too. And I don't know. I, I guess I was bewildered by that statement because... Yeah, I had to think about it. I I, I do feel like he grows up. I I, I don't know... I don't know if they meant like in a physical sense or 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 because <laughs> if, if we're talking emotionally speaking, I I think his emotional growth is pretty obvious or well maybe it's not all growth but he definitely goes through the motions of changes you know yeah. he goes from being a kid to being traumatized by war to being uh, desensitized to war to like finally having something to care care about and to believe in so yeah i'm really kind of curious what he meant by that it's i i still don't i don't know what he means i i don't know if i can really agree with that statement mm-hmm. yeah i mean later it, it, later it has me at a loss <laughs> a few lines later in the interview yaz says Yes, the protagonist, a boy with a fairly negative attitude, this kid who isn't really a team player, not much in the way of social skills, almost starts to do some growing up in light of the severe circumstances. But how do I put it? It gets distorted in an abstruse direction along the way. After that process of distortion reaches an extreme, you get the final scene where he returns to his buddies. I think that's when he does some sort of growing up. But it just if it sounds like he's he's saying it in such a passive uh almost backhanded way where it's like sort of grows up i I don't know yeah right? like I think it's pretty dismissive about Amro's actual growth, 
But yeah, but yeah. he's, you know, at the end of the day, he's the writer, he's the creator. So it's hard for me to. I mean, Maybe. I obviously wouldn't say anything to him, but <laughs> you're wrong. What are you talking about? You don't understand. You don't story. know. <laughs> you don't know Gundam. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, maybe if you take the point of view that growth is it's only considered growth uh when change truly takes hold because if if you look at the story at if you look at Amro's arc from the perspective of how he often backslides into his old ways maybe maybe that's why they don't consider that part of the story to be growth. And it's not until the end when that growth is finally actualized. Like he takes steps towards growth, but he constantly backslides into being this sort of antisocial or kind of awkward guy who who doesn't always fit in with everybody. It's not until the end when he finally does fit in with everybody uh, in a, I guess, in a holistic way or some kind of some kind of finality to it. I don't know. That's that's all I can really think of. I would have been interested to see uh, if they had discussed that in more depth, because, yeah, like you, that that also kind of uh, quirked my eyebrow or perplexed me a bit. I don't know if I can agree with that sentiment like i'm not saying that that's you know uh for sure what he was saying obviously but um the idea that uh you know amuro's any changes amuro's goes through are all just temporary and therefore it's not actual growth i like i don't i don't know uh I, I just feel like that's not how people work. Um, I was thinking of uh, uh, the series BoJack Horseman, and they were one of the re- recurring themes of that show is that uh, every season the main character, like every other season, the main character has one season where he has some sort of epiphany and some signs of like change in his character. And then the next season he finds a way to backslide. And that's kind of the pattern of, uh, of his life is that he, he changes only to regress. Right. And when Raphael Bob Waxman was uh, interviewed about that, he was talking, I feel like I've talked about this a couple of times, um, but he's, uh, when he was interviewed about that, he was talking about how, like, the idea of, like, sitcoms is that your problems are always resolved in by the end of, like, 20 minutes, and by the next episode, those problems are never problems ever again, and you have new problems that will be resolved in 20 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. But he was saying that real people aren't really built that way. Like real change happens over the course of a lifetime and it happens gradually and people regress. It's just kind of what they do, you know, and real 
change and maturity doesn't come from uh, this idea that I've conquered whatever my personal demons are and now it's no longer an issue. Like, real change is the ability to acknowledge it and to continue to strive for change in spite of the fact that you may regress. Mm. Um, So, yeah, so when it comes to the idea that, well, Amuro never has this moment where, you know, there's a line of demarcation in his character where he he sorted out all his problems and he was he never had problems with those feelings ever again, you know? Um I just I just don't think that that Yeah, I, I don't think that that's uh, uh an idea that if that's the way that maturity uh or growth is is measured, I don't know if I can uh get behind that idea. Well, I think what that really indicates is that we're not mature. <laughs> I never said I standards. was. By those standards. <laughs> I never said I was. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, that but that is something that's that's the kind of statement that deserves to be dug into a little more, you know. It's it's not a little thing to say, you know. Yeah. It's, what about it's not, Char, though? Do you think Char grows up in the story? No. <laughs> <laughs> that's an easy answer for you. That's that's a far easier answer. I don't think he grows up. Like, I, I think... I think it's fair to say that what he is at the beginning is pretty much what he is at the end. And, and he might be a guy who has one moment where, you know for whatever window of clarity he has, he decided to use it to, you know, get revenge on Cassilia and, and the Zeons as a whole, but the or the zombies as a whole, but, but, you know, presuming that <laughs> he dies or, or, or that he's not seen again until the next time he is seen, uh okay well okay for the sake of argument let's just say that we presume that he died at the end of that explosion right okay uh then then we can say okay there's no potential for him to change or grow anymore so he is whatever his character is at that point in time is in a fixed state and maybe you can tell yourself that you know that that one moment of clarity that he had is is you know his one redeeming moment i guess <laughs> <laughs> but I, it's it's hard for me to imagine yeah i don't know that he's he really had any actual growth i i think he was just what he was yeah i think when i think about it from that lens to me, Char is kind of similar to Batman because once Bruce Wayne's parents were murdered, he was who he was, you know? And I feel like <laughs> the same thing applies to Char. Once once his mother is killed or once she dies off in seclusion in this really sad way, he is who he is. And that's just, you know, like his age is different as he gets older, but the person that he was going to be that's just who he is the same way that when batman's parents were murdered 
when he's in that alleyway, something changes in him, and he's just Batman. He might be eight years old, and he doesn't know how to fight, but he's still Batman, you know? Like, he, that's just how he's going to grow up. His, his life's only going to go one way, and there ain't no change in it. Man, the way you describe it, you make, so- you make it sound like Batman is just an emotionally stunted child who's always going to be that way. <laughs> you don't think he is, though? I do think he is. Like, when you <laughs> okay. really break it down... When you really break it down, he's he's a guy who can't let it go. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were about to lay out an impassioned defense of Batman's psychological maturity. No, no. <laughs> like, he might be the most capable guy uh, on Earth, the most capable crime fighter on the planet. But that's only if you exclude his capacity to handle his emotional well-being. <laughs> <laughs> See, he and Shaw are pretty similar. They just, you know, came to different conclusions. <laughs> Man. Now I want to see that version of Batman. <laughs> where he just grows up living for revenge. Where he's just an emotionally stunted man-child. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That is too funny. Ugh. I bet that'll piss off a bunch of people out there. <laughs> oh, yeah. No doubt. No doubt about it. A uh, couple other interesting points made in the conversation with Uchida. Uh, both of them talked a little bit about how when they were students, they were left-wingers and really wanted America to leave Japan. Yasuhiko was born in 47. So, you know, growing up in the... I guess he was in college probably in the 60s, so... At that point, you know, he still really wanted America to leave Japan. And I think it's interesting to consider how that sort of view um, might have shaped or impacted his storytelling and, you know, the things that he likes to write about and how that impacts Gundam itself. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like... Shortly later in that uh, discussion, they also discussed the idea of the giant robot genre as a metaphor for the U.S.-Japan relationship as seen by the Japanese people. And they they make note that Shar has more fans than Amuro in the Japanese fandom. And Uchida muses whether it's possible that for Japanese people, Zeon has greater emotional resonance. Oh. So like when I read that and... and uh, in relation to the quote about how they how they wanted America to leave Japan in the post-war era. Huh, it, it made me think, man. It made yeah. me think. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. It's, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to bring it into reality for a second because uh, uh, this, this podcast happens to happen to drop on on the same day that some news dropped in Japan, actually, that was pretty interesting news. Um, well, I guess if you're into, like, policy and stuff, it might be interesting. But, uh, like, I think they just announced today in Japan that they're raising their uh, military budget to be double what it's been. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's been talks... I guess, you know, that region of the world 
has obviously seen a lot of instability. Um, Japan has issues with North Korea. Japan is seeing a competitor in China. And with all the things that Russia has been doing um, in Ukraine, uh, they've and Russia and Japan being historical uh, rivals of sorts. Mm -hmm. uh, Japan has has taken this pretty huge step of raising their military budget and doubling it. And it's a lot of people, a lot of commentators are, are saying that this is, maybe it's not outright saying that they're ready to be like militaristic, but it's definitely a sign to their neighbors that they are prepared to defend themselves and to take a more uh, a larger role in the like military goings-ons in the region yeah and and yeah. that and that that's well, something was, that, was there anything in that news about uh like ramping up any kind of military action because i I thought that they technically considered their forces to be self-defense forces, not an actual that's the thing. military. That's the thing. After World War II, there was a lot of talk of uh, them not uh, about Japan not being allowed to have uh, a, like basically an offensive military. But I think they were talking about how they're going to be updating their military. And I don't know if it it I'd have to go back and listen to the reports, uh, but I don't know if they're actually going to like create a offensive military outside of a defense force. But it sounds like they are updating their their armaments. Yeah, I mean, just beefing up the the amount of funding and resources for their self defense forces says a lot. Yeah, exactly. It in and of itself, it's a pretty big symbol, and it's it's just interesting because again, in the post World War II era, uh, a lot of their policies have been pretty passive militarily speaking. Mm -hmm. So for them to take this stance, uh. It's a pretty big sign, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know. Again, more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Before we uh, move on to our conclusion and our recommendations, I just want to end with one more Yaz quote. It's from the end of his interview with Makoto Shinkai. And I feel like this is something that works as a pretty good summation of Gundam. And you actually alluded to this a little while ago, but I'll just read the quote in, uh, in whole. One of the biggest misunderstandings was this reading that all types are a no-good bunch who need to be supplanted by a new type generation adapted to the space age. That was the Amkult's view, too. The Gundam story isn't about that. It's a story, through and through, about desperation. People can't change. They can't understand one another. They can't, but how great it would be if they could. 
let's hold on to that hope. That's what the story is. And new types are that hope. Even so, people will still end up hurting each other. The sorrow of the human condition. But also, in the end, you can return to your buddies because, after all, nobody can survive alone. It's a simple message, but it's effective and sometimes it's all you need. Agreed. Mm -hmm. Agreed. All right. So moving on to our recommendations. I do got to highlight my Gundam recommendations for anyone who might have finished The Origin. If you're open and willing to watch anime, I mean, there's a massive amount of material out there, a massive amount of Gundam stuff you can out there. I think there's over 50 different shows and movies and OVAs and things that you could consume. So I'll try to highlight uh, a few specific ones. As far as Gundam manga goes, it doesn't seem like there's too much uh, available uh, that's been translated to English. The other main one that I can think of is Gundam Thunderbolt. I haven't read it, but it's something that I really, really want to read. It's just that some of those volumes... I guess are out of print or just really hard to find right now. And uh, for some reason, the the library doesn't have them and they're not available digitally. So it's kind of a pain. Mm. But yeah, as far as Gundam anime goes, I would recommend watching the original Mobile Suit Gundam. You know, the source material for the origin whether you watch the TV series or the movie trilogy compilations, it's a good time. And if you've already read the origin, it's definitely uh, going to be enhanced by the knowledge you bring into watching it. Mm. Makes sense. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam is the direct sequel to First Gundam. So I think... If you just want to see what happens next in the story in the Universal Century, that's the one that you should go to. That that one was by Tomino as well. He directed it and came up with the concept. Yasuhiko wasn't quite as involved. Uh, he only really did the character designs. And he might have worked on some of the early production materials, but I don't think he uh, directed any of it or anything like that. But Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam takes place, I think, in UC 0087. Yeah, I think it's 0087. So a few years pass. Um, I don't know. You want to know the premise of it, Albert? Or do you just want to be sure. surprised if you watch it? Why is there? Tell me. Let's 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 talk about it. Okay. So you know how in this story we kind of i think i i noticed us doing it a couple times here and there in a lot of episodes where uh we basically boil down the zeons to the bad guys and the federation to the good guys right so mobile suit zeta gundam kind of flips that around so after the war it's not that zeon is the good guys or anything but the federation just gets more and more corrupt and they become the villains of the story Oh. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. That's a nice uh, subversion of expectations. Yeah. So all yeah. the scenes that you see in first Gundam in the origin with all these fat cats on Earth just kind of sitting in their ivory towers, uh, not caring about the people that they're throwing into the meat grinder or, you know, things like that. All the all the politics and all the things about the space noids being oppressed by a government that is so far away from them and really doesn't care about their needs. Like that just mm-hmm. continues to get worse and worse as time goes by, especially uh, after this armistice. And by the time 0087 comes around, uh, yeah, there's another war and the Federation is pretty much the, the, the villain. aggressor. Yeah, the aggressor to begin with. And it gets more complex as the story progresses. It's a fairly long series. I think 49 or 50 episodes. Mm. But I like it a lot, man. It's great. I think I think that makes sense in the grand scheme of history. In that if you look at a lot of these, uh, I guess, like ethnic conflicts, regional ethnic conflicts... The the peace that they end up having doesn't end up being a long-term peace because, again, it's just an issue where the violence might subside, but there's resentment that still boils beneath the, the surface. Mm-hmm. And it really just takes one or two things to uh, get the ball rolling so that it snowballs into another conflict you know a lot of these conflicts are are sort of not designed that way but they're built that way just by happenstance of 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 just this this the constant back and forth nature of of these uh of these like regional rivalries yeah so yeah that's that's if you if you look at the story of Gundam, uh, including Zeta, from what you've described, uh, within that context, it totally makes sense. Yeah, totally. And yeah. the other thing I would say uh, to try and sell you on Zeta is that it's as a sequel. It's a direct sequel, but instead of following around Amuro piloting a new Gundam, there's actually a new protagonist who's a who's kind of in the mold of Amuro. He's a, another teenager, a teenage boy who gets his hands on a Gundam and gets embroiled in a in a war that he didn't start. Uh, oh. And this boy's name is Camille, which is kind of funny because it's a girl's name and they make fun of him in the show and it gets him in trouble when he when he gets mad at people. But, okay. Yeah, he's, he's a, a pretty good protagonist also. And I don't want to spoil... Too much like all the other surprises you can find out for yourself if you ever watch it but uh yeah it's a it's a new protagonist uh making it not only a sequel but a really good starting point and jumping on point as well because you don't really need to know any prior history um about the old characters or anything you just start right in with a brand new hero okay okay nice I'll definitely uh, keep that in mind. Uh, yeah. Um, go ahead. What were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say uh, there are a couple of 
other uh, recommendations in terms of Gundam anime that I have. Uh, there's a couple self-contained OVA side stories that are set during the One Year War that are top-tier viewing material. And these are stories that have all different characters and because they're side stories, uh, they're pretty much com they're complete in and of themselves and you don't really need to be concerned with how they're connected to the stories that we just read. But there's Mobile Suit 0080, War in the Pocket, which is a pretty heartfelt story. It's a Christmas story, actually, or at least it takes place around Christmas, so it's like <laughs> Die Hard. <laughs> 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 but War in the Pocket is a very human story about uh, the cost of war. And out of all the Gundams that I've seen, I, I think that's the one that's that really drives home the point of being an anti-war story where uh you know we talked about the tension between being entertaining and trying to have this message of war is bad and i think war in the pocket like there's definitely scenes that show really great mech animation and cool battles and stuff but i think because it's so condensed uh, it's only six episodes long it really gets to the point uh, and the heart of the matter which is that people suffer in war and and that's like the main message that comes across in war in the pocket mm. Mm. the oath ms team is a story set on earth during the one-year war and it's about it's basically uh like an earth guerrilla war where uh, the federation is fighting off uh federation uh zeon forces that are entrenched in i think it's meant to be like southeast asia I don't know, remember if they ever say the name of where they are, but it's it's basically like Vietnam, where there's a lot of uh, forest and stuff. Uh, but there's other terrain in other certain episodes, so I'm not exactly sure. But it's it's a very uh, action-oriented series that's also very character-driven. Uh, I'd say the premise is about not only that war setting, but the main protagonist... There are two main protagonists, and one of them is a Xeon female pilot, a test pilot, and the other one is a male commander of a mobile suit unit. So there's kind of this Romeo and Juliet thing going on where they meet each other outside of the war uh, before the story, or at the beginning of the story, and then they end up on opposite sides in this war zone even though they've got this connection and, you know, stuff happens that you just, it's better to watch than for me to try and describe to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it does feel like if you want to take your pick of Gundam uh, uh, material, there's, it's just got such a rich, long history. Like definitely there's, I, I imagine that there's, bad stuff but there's yeah. a whole bunch of good stuff in there too you got also got stuff like iron-blooded orphans you know yeah yeah definitely would recommend iron-blooded orphans and turn a gundam if you're interested in alternate universe gundams meaning stuff that's not set in the universal century continuity so those are shows turn a gundam and iron-blooded orphans are shows that anyone can watch with no prior gundam knowledge so you don't have to even have read the origin or 
know anything about Shar or Amro. You can just watch those yeah. from episode one. And and I can attest to that yeah. because I actually watched the show without having to having any prior knowledge about Gundam, and it made total sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Finally, the, the last things that I would point out are the Yasuhiko Gundam anime. So there's actually an anime adaptation of the origin. It was an OVA series, but they only adapted the flashback arcs from the manga. So just the stuff about Shar and Sela when they were growing up. And it goes from that period up to the Battle of Loom right before the story proper begins. And Yaz directed those OVAs. I believe there are six big episodes. They're like an hour long. And they were also re-edited into a TV series. And I think it's on Crunchyroll. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice, nice. And the other anime that he directed, we talked about it back in our October Volume 10 episode, but he directed Mobile Suit Gundam, Kukuru's Doan's Island, <laughs> a feature film that was released earlier this year. Kukuru's Doan, such a great Gundam name. It's pretty great. <laughs> well, what, what's a better name, Kukuru's Doan or Willy Macho? Uh, I think I'm going to have to go with Willy Macho because... There's something to the simplicity of Willy Macho that is just unrivaled. <laughs> you should name your son Willy Macho. <laughs> uh, uh, that I'll put that on a list in contention. <laughs> I really can't wait until you have kids, man. Uh, that uh, creeps me out a little, the idea of someone being super enthusiastic about me having kids <laughs> someone that's not a parent <laughs> yeah you should be creeped out uh yeah so i'll throw it to you now man what recommendations do you have to our good listener out there um i don't really have quite as many uh recommendations uh I think the one thing that immediately jumped out at me, and I, I don't even know if this really counts, because, one, I haven't read the books, but I did watch <laughs> the series. But So I'll just go with it. If you're looking for uh, a story that takes place in a fantastic setting but uses elements of history as the uh foundation for its storytelling i would say that the one thing that i would recommend is game of thrones uh i don't know if this was just a rumor or if this was or if there was actual truth to it uh but i remember hearing somewhere that george R. R. martin like looked into the war of the roses and a lot of the european history and you know a lot of the um wars that were going on around that particular time period uh and use that kind of as the not maybe not the basis for for game of thrones but you know uh incorporated a lot of the historical stuff that was going on uh you know the the political machinations and and uh backstabbing and uh power plays that and he put that into Game of Thrones. So I, I think something like uh, Gundam Origin made me think of that as, mm. as a story. 
So I, I think that's why I I drew that comparison. Um, the one other thing that I, I didn't think of while... Hang while, on a sec. Before uh, we move on from Game of Thrones, I, I got a question, man. Yeah, sure. So what's your take on the ending of Game of Thrones? Because I know a lot of people <laughs> seem to uh, really despise it. Yeah. Um... Okay, I won't mince words. I I actually did like it. So, uh and I do think that the more people hated it, the more I did like it. <laughs> the uh, more people are mad about something, the better we yeah. feel about it. <laughs> yeah. I I'll say this much. Um I acknowledge some of the things, some of the uh criticisms people had about season what was it, 7? Where some of the some of the things felt rushed, or it just felt like uh, you know they they just kind of glossed over certain details to to get to a a point. But I also I don't know. I I guess I'm more forgiving because I'm just like, look, uh, this was the story they wanted to tell. Uh, you know, I had an entertaining time watching some of the bigger battles come come to an end some of the bigger storylines come to an end uh i don't know why well, i don't know what else anyone would want you know like <laughs> i i watched that entire final season and even if i wasn't happy about it i didn't feel so upset about it that i proceeded to complain about it at every chance that i got and i didn't proceed to start a kickstarter to try to redo season seven i mean <laughs> yeah you didn't that just sounded, no it just sounded stupid <laughs> so if anything that just hardened my resolve to be to to be a fan of that last season so nice. and i do think that sometimes when i talk to people who who you know say that they don't like the last season it just feels like they're just parroting things that other people have said which doesn't really impress me you know yeah yeah it's, do you it have doesn't... other friends who also uh appreciate the ending i don't think so i'm I'm pretty sure everyone that i know did not like that final season oh okay yeah i haven't I can't... seen it so I, I i have a feeling i would like it just based on knowing that yeah you like it. Everybody hates it. Everybody else hates it. <laughs> I feel like I mean, I, it just makes me biased into liking it. Yeah, yeah. But that's the thing. When I think about it, I can't think of a single person in any of my friend groups that that likes it. I respect you, man. You're you're willing to take a stand even when everybody around you is just going with the popular opinion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I've I've. I've brought it up in conversation enough where I was like, I don't think it was that bad. And, you know, maybe my strongest arguments are, what did you expect? But still, you know, uh, <laughs> it's like, you knew that unless you were expecting the White Walkers to just absolutely obliterate everyone, the end. <laughs> like, I don't know. Oh, man. <laughs> so that's not what happens. I'm not Dang saying it's it, not Alfred. what happens. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, but yeah. Um, the one other 
show uh, that that did pop into my mind when uh, when we were talking about this uh, was actually Star Trek Deep Space Nine. That's something I'd probably oh. recommend in a similar vein because it's a pretty large, expansive uh, sci fi opera that that's pretty pretty epic in scope so i think in that sense i do think in that sense that it is uh you know if you enjoy uh you know gundam the origin i i, I think you could find a way into enjoying star trek deep space nine as well yeah totally yeah i haven't watched all of deep space nine but everything that i have seen i liked a lot yeah yeah so there we go them's my two nice nice yeah and i'll offer one comic book recommendation and it's also a manga that has an anime but uh, i would my pick is neon genesis evangelion the manga by yoshiyuki sadamoto this one is kind of the closest thing i can think of in terms of what yaz did with Gundam, because as we know, Yaz started the origin a couple decades after the original series ran its course or aired on TV. But he was also one of the original creators involved with the show. And Yoshiyuki Sadamoto was the character designer on Evangelion, even though it was an and it was designed as an anime first. I think the first chapter of the manga might have come out before the first episode aired. I could be wrong, so somebody should double check if you care about factual accuracy. But I do know that it took him quite a while to finish the manga because I think there were some delays and hiatuses taken. So he didn't actually finish the manga until many years after the anime had aired on TV and had uh, the end of Evangelion movie and became this big phenomenon. So uh, it's interesting to see his take on the story. It's a little bit different from the anime. And I say this as someone who hasn't even read the entire manga. I only have like the first five or six volumes. But uh, even from those volumes, I can tell that there are some differences from the show and i think even the later volumes might go a little bit uh farther with that but uh yeah I w that's something that i would still recommend I, th I do think ava probably works best as an anime so if you read the manga i probably still want you to watch it <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> all right and that about wraps it up man Finally, right. after 12 months, we have completed our extensive read-through and discussions of Mobile Suit Gundam, The Origin, by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko. Yep, yep. So if anyone has any comments or questions, you know, feel free to hit us up at betweenthegutterspodcast at gmail.com or, you know, DM us on our Instagram at betweenthegutters or tweet at us uh, while Twitter is still functioning um you know uh yeah uh 
And if you happen to be listening to us on whatever platform you're listening to us on, if you could, you know, give us the highest possible rating that you think we deserve. We're hoping it's really high. We would really appreciate that. (laughs) That's right. All right, everybody. You have been listening to Between the Gutters, episode 153. Thanks for joining us. Next week, we will be discussing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Last Ronin, as part of our year-end special. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. And credit to Corey J. Beats for our new theme music, which debuted last episode. We are a real podcast now, baby. That's right. We are a real podcast now. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. Peace out. Bye, guys.